Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalists Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. We got TK Coleman in the studio. Yeah, what it is. <laughs> Malabama is here. Hey, everybody. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Emma the Immigrant, Social Jess, and the rest of our team. Man, we got so much to talk about today. But first, big thanks to you, our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement-free because, say it with me, y'all, advertisements suck. Oh, Everyone said it correctly, too. That's awesome. I was originally going to call this episode The Feelings, and maybe we still Mm. will, but we have a great question about saying no or how, how how to stop saying yes so frequently. So we're going to talk about that as well. But we, it feels like this episode is tailor-made for Nicodemus and Coleman. I'm just a fly on the wall to ask you about your feelings. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of questions. People asking about their own feelings and the struggles they're having with their feelings. So I figure we dive right in to the episode. Start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, Give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Mary in Springfield, Virginia. My name is Mary, and I'm from Springfield, Virginia. I'm a teacher. My job brings me joy and gives me purpose. But for the first time in over a decade of teaching, I've decided to work part-time. I did this in order to create space to better support and be more present with my daughters. How does someone who is a people-pleasing, hardworking, quote-unquote, good girl, manage the guilt I feel when saying no to requests to do all the things I did when I was full-time? Or how do I manage the disappointment I feel when asked to do things beyond my hours without compensation? I realize that this is something that a lot of women and especially teachers wrestle with. I want to learn how to address these feelings so that I can continue to say no and hopefully teach my daughters how to do the same. So how do you say no and then let it go? TK, this is a difficult Mm. one because it is much harder to say no when we feel an incredible sense of joy and purpose as Mary does. So it's not like she's dreading it. It's easy to say no to the things we dread, right? Right. If I'm like, hey, TK, do you want to help me go pick up trash on the side of the road today? Unless you have a really compelling reason, it's going to be easier for you to say no because you have something that is better to say yes to. That's right. Implicit in every no is a yes to something else, even if that something else is not something that is highly adventurous. To say no really means I would rather be relaxing, enjoying my own t- my alone time, taking a nap, being with a friend, planning out the rest of my week, whatever it may be, it's something else that you want to say yes to. And sometimes we avoid saying yes to alternatives and we give people these no's that we don't want to give because we're afraid we're going to be unloving. We're afraid we're going to be inconsiderate. And I actually think no is sometimes the optimal expression of love. 
Sometimes the kindest, most compassionate thing you can do for another person is to tell them no. Because when you tell them no now, you save them from the resentment you will feel in the future. And you better be sure that bitterness is going to be expressed in some other kind of way. It's better to risk looking and sounding mean in the present than to actually become mean in the future because you didn't take care of yourself and now you're engaging those very people you want it to be nice to from a place of resentment. That's no good. But why does it feel so difficult in the moment? And it feels like the opposite of compassion. If I'm saying no to you right yeah. now, and you know how good I am at saying no, Yeah. but I wasn't always that way. Yeah. I filled my calendar with everyone else's yeses because something was a hell yes to someone. I then took on their yeses. And unfortunately, what that did is it crowded out my own yeses, my ability to say mm. yes to the things that were important to me. And what I realized, Mary, is that to be happy, I had to stop saying mm. yes to the things that made me miserable. Even though in the moment, it's really easy to say yes. It's really easy to commit my future self a week from now, a month from now, especially a year from now. Mm. Oh, Ryan, let's go ahead and put this on our calendar yeah. for next February. I'm not a problem because I don't have to worry about it today. But now I'm punishing my future self. So yep. why is it so difficult to say now in the moment? Mm. Yeah. Go ahead, no, go ahead. no, please allow me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, here's the thing is when you tell someone no and you don't know how they uh, interpreted that no, for me, it would be easy to feel guilty because I might assume the worst, like, oh, this person doesn't like me anymore, thinks that I don't like them, or mm. they're not a priority, or I don't care about them. We start uh, uh, telling ourselves these stories. Catastrophizing. Yeah, that we're totally making up. Am I repeating yourself? <laughs> <laughs> what does catastrophizing mean Josh give us the word of the day I mean it just means does it mean making something up yeah it means that we turn everything into a catastrophe mm. what's the worst oh. case scenario right oh yes mm. right and, and it's and it may not even be true but that's the story we tell ourselves um uh, and God forbid we expect the best. Like, oh, you know what? They understood. Yeah. They love me so much. Like, I don't have to explain myself, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I know that sometimes uh, in the past when I would say no, that's probably why I was feeling guilty. So when you tell someone no and you let them know why you said no and that they understand that, I think that is maybe how Mary can uh, avoid some of this guilt because then she doesn't have to make up stories in her head. I got a really good friend who was like, Hey man, you know, um, when I first met him and we're, we're hitting it off and he's like, Hey, uh, really would love to you to like to show up, um, at this meeting, uh, th that I host. And you know, it's a bunch of entrepreneurs that, you know, he pitches me and I'm like, Hey man, I love you. I was like, but I, I can't commit. Like if I commit to this, then I'm going to be fully invested in, I have to say no to this so I can say yes to like keeping that two or three hours on Friday mornings uh, available for me. And um, he has brought that up so much. He's like, you have no idea how much I respected you for saying that and like letting me know. Um, so yeah, Mary, if, if you're if you're letting someone yeah. know what you're saying yes to, then um, then yeah, you can probably let go of some of that guilt. I would I would presume. Yeah, you know, sometimes the people who demand or request a lot of us almost like guiltlessly to the point where we resent them for putting us in these positions where we have to say no. Sometimes those people are really good for us because they challenge us to think more specifically and intentionally about the lives that we want to live and the things that we want to do. And sometimes we may not even think about what version of helping someone we would be happy with. And then when they come to us and say, hey, do this to make me happy, we just say yes to what they request out of guilt. But 
when you have a hard time saying no to people and you feel guilty, it's usually because you care about them. If this is someone that you absolutely hate it, you just say no with no problem. But it's because you actually do like this person and you do want to help them. And that's a good thing. But when you're in that position, I would take a moment to think about what a fun and feasible way of helping them looks like for you. And you don't have to say yes or no in the moment. You can say, hey, give me a minute to think about that. I don't know. Let me have a minute. And then you can take a minute and come back and say, hey, I can't do it that way, but I can do it this way. I can't do it on that day, but I can do it on this day. I can't do it for that amount of time, but I can do it for this amount of time. So you don't always have to say no. Sometimes you can say yes to their request in a way that's best for you. Yeah, I, yeah. it's it's interesting. Finding ways to say yes. Yeah that are renegotiating the terms of the yes. Someone reached out on Patreon recently and they were like, hey, I realized that listening to the Minimalist podcast, the ideal speed is 1.3 times (laughs) the normal speed. And for me, I like listening at like 1.8. So it's the ideal for that person is 1.3. I like listening at 1.8. And she asked, hey, is it possible on the Patreon app to listen at 1.3? And my initial response was, well, no, uh, you can have to listen to 1.25 or 1.5. Like, here are the options that are available, right? But I got to thinking, well, yes, there is a way I can say yes to this. Yeah. Because most people listen to the private podcast, the audio version of the private podcast via their favorite podcast right. app, mm-hmm. like Apple Podcast or Feedly or Acast or whatever you use. And when I was talking to them, it's like, well, yeah, just listen to it in your favorite app. Here's Here are the instructions. So it wasn't a yes We'll get Patreon to completely change their infrastructure. It was, no, most people actually listen this way. And I can say yes, but the terms are a little bit different. Yeah. Get creative with that. Yes. Sometimes we we treat people as if they're being weak if they struggle with saying no. We we treat them as if they're being a a pushover if they really want to say yes. But your desire to say yes just means that these are people that you feel some genuine compassion for. You love serving them. And if you can be creative with that, yes, you can do it in a way that really feels right for you. And it will feel right only if it doesn't make you miserable. And then we're made miserable often by our expectations. We're going to talk later in the private podcast episode about every relationship bringing us misery and how our expectations bring us misery. And so, Mary, I want to send you a copy of our book. It's called Everything That Remains. It's Ryan's and my second book. We wrote it a decade ago, and it was really the story of two guys who started saying no to the expectations of the corporate world, started saying no in ways we hadn't before. And it was really shocking to people at first, because when you say yes, 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 and all of a sudden someone hears a no, it's breaking the pattern. Mm-hmm, it's breaking yeah. that pattern of yes. And that's how we have to do it. It's like if I haven't gone to the gym in a long time and then I start going to the gym, I'm probably going to be sore the next day. So the first few no's are going to make you a little bit sore because you're so used to saying yes. But that soreness, that saying no mm-hmm. or stopping, you're not even saying no really, you're stop saying yes to everything. Yeah. That's what you got to do. You got to stop saying yes to everything that's making you miserable because otherwise you're just going to continue to be miserable. So if you like our podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version of Everything That Remains. Or if you want the book book or the ebook version, we'll send those to you. Any last words for Mary? Can you speak really quickly to the compensation question she asked? She's doing some work for free and it's and she doesn't want to do it, but she feels bad about the fact that she would rather have the compensation or be off work. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being 
compensated, right? Wanting to be compensated for your work. Uh, Ryan and I and TK, we all get compensated for the work we do, but we don't do the work for the compensation. Mm. The way that I like to think about it is money is a passenger in the car, but I never let it behind the wheel. Yeah. It'd be disingenuous to say it plays no role whatsoever because we live in a society that requires the exchange of, mm. of money. Mm. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting to be compensated for what you do. The problem, and we're going to talk later about some of the problems of capitalism because a lot, this question comes up a lot mm. for the minimalists and I want to make some distinctions there. But the problem here is not the desire to be compensated. It's the fact that you feel, you might feel used if you aren't compensated. It feels unfair to you, right? Yeah. yeah. By the way, mon the monetary, comp monetary compensation is not merely the only way to be compensated for right. something. Absolutely. That's a good distinction. Well, sometimes too, I mean, you got to put a barrier up. Like if you have a skill or a service or whatever it is that is really desired and people are constantly asking you to provide that for free, um, sometimes you got to put up a little bit of a barrier to kind of um, filter out some of those asks. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got to think about the the other people in your life as well. So you may not care about the money or compensation very much, but the time that you're giving up might be something that the children you want to spend time with, they can be affected by that. So yeah. um, either demand that compensation or demand that time because both your money and your time is something that you can use to serve your family. Our next question is from Amanda in Chattanooga. Hey, Josh. This is Amanda from just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. You've mentioned before that you have OCD. I have panic disorder, which both are anxiety disorders. I'm just wondering, what are the things that you do to calm yourself? Are there any natural remedies that work for you that you don't mind sharing? We can certainly talk about some methods or techniques that will help in the moment. But quite often, these methods or techniques are like, especially with anxiety, as our friend Dr. John Deloney talks about, it's like taking the battery out of the smoke detector. It doesn't actually extinguish the fire. In fact, it can make things much worse if we don't address the root of our anxiety. I was talking to a friend recently, and she gets anxious all the time, but she's often putting herself in situations that are heavily stimulating, right? Mm. And of course, we're walking around more anxious than ever as a society because we're in a more stimulating society than ever before. I have an anxiety-producing machine in my pocket, and it's buzzing and reminding me that I should be anxious in this moment. Now, I will say this. Some people have a higher tolerance or higher threshold. Ryan handles stress and anxiety a lot better than I do, but even he has a threshold. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. he reaches that threshold then, of course, it the, the effects of it manifest in different ways. Yeah. Here's, here's what I'll say, though, to Amanda specifically. What if your weakness, in quotes here, what if your weakness is actually a superpower? Mm -hmm. Because we often think of OCD, and some people would even call it a mental illness, and I've been diagnosed with OCD, right? And so, of course, that must be bad. Mm. Okay, there are certainly some bad parts about it, right? Mm. But what if it's also a superpower? What if it's the thing that fuels me? My attention to detail enables us to do, enables me and our whole team to do some things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do if I didn't have that same obsession with the details. Mm. I saw this Instagram video recently. Someone shared it with me. It was a cat who every time they went, they'd go into the bathroom. And they would jump onto the counter 
and they would fix the toilet paper dispenser if paper was was uh, was dangling down. The cat would just go in and gently tidy up the paper dispenser. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how I feel. But also, like, I want a cat like that. Like, I don't want a cat for any other reason other than it will come in and tidy things up. I never even looked at it this way, but if you were an animal, like a cat, you could, I could totally see you as a cat. <laughs> Why is this? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, uh, you're, you're uh, very particular in your ways. We're like, I'm a dog where I'm like, just love me. Yeah. <laughs> if he doesn't need people, he's, right. he's good on his own. And Josh, Josh is like, uh, leave me alone um, unless I need some food or uh, unless you need me to tidy up the, <laughs> the good, toilet paper. Good with people, but but great without them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk to you about that during our talk aboutable segment. I had a realization about myself recently. And my introversion in particular. We'll save that for mm. the talk aboutables yeah. segment later this episode. Mary, here's one thing that I do regularly, and it helps me more than anything else with respect to my anxiety, my obsessive compulsive disorder, right? My obsessive compulsive superpower. Mm. Here's the thing that helps me more, more than anything. I laugh at the absurdity of everything. Mm. Because when I see something out of place and it really bothers me, it bothers me, right? But then if I laugh at it, what does that do? It takes the edge off. It takes the seriousness out of it. It makes me realize that this isn't permeating the fabric of existence. It's not about the toilet paper is slightly off and therefore that is disordered. No, it's only disordered because I say that that is out of order. Mm. I have made up a story in my mind about how things should be. But when I laugh at those shoulds, mm -hmm. I see the absurdity. I am an absurdist. I laugh at everything, especially the things that seem most serious. Death, disease, anxiety, depression. I have to be able to laugh at those things. Mm. Otherwise, they'll crush me. Yeah, man. I mean, that's it for better or worse. Like That's how you and I handle a lot of tough situations is laughing through it. Um, Man, I want to give Amanda a recommendation, uh, just something that I just started using within the last like five or six days, but there's an app called NeuroCycle. Have you heard of this? No. Um, I forget the doctor, I forget her name, would love, would love to actually have her on the podcast. Um, but it starts off with her kind of explaining like, uh, if you think of these negative emotions or these negative thoughts as like a tree and you can like, each thought is a, is a tree. So you've got like the roots, which is like the cause of the thought. And then the trunk is the thought. And then from the thought, you have all of these symptoms and reactions and all these things branching out just because of this one thought. And what she does is she really helps you unpack it. And uh, yeah, I would just say, Amanda, like I highly recommend NeuroCycle. Um, you, I think you can do it free for like three or four days. And it's not that expensive either, like if you want to sign up for it. But what it does is it helps you interrupt these absurdities that go through our mind and it helps you pre present them to yourself in a different way. It gives you a different perspective. And like I said, I've only, I've only been doing it five or six days, but like each day I have learned something new about myself that like, cause I could look at all my thoughts. Oh, well that's trauma. And this is from that. And you know, childhood stuff that we you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but she has, enabled me to dig deeper, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, you think you know something um, and, until you find out that you don't. But yeah, I would highly recommend NeuroCycle for we'll anyone a, out there. We'll put a link to NeuroCycle in the show notes. It is not an ad, by the way. No, no, Ryan, no. 
Uh, how can we prove it's not an ad? It use, doesn't matter, dude. I don't use care. the promo code <laughs> ANALBEES. <laughs> oh, man. There we go. For the listeners that are curious, her name is actually Dr. Leaf. Cool. Dr. Carolina Leaf. It is Dr. Or Carolina, Carolina Leaf. Leaf. Yeah, me. thank you. Yeah, Carolina Leaf. Thank you so much. TK, Matt you want to bring this one home for Amanda? You know, I would say for any unwanted feeling, don't push it away. Let it pass through. There's an old saying that what you resist persists. And anytime you establish an antagonistic relationship with the feeling, even if it's a really uncomfortable feeling, you tend to amplify it and make it come more alive. And then that tends to result in this perpetuating cycle of self-condemnation and guilt. And, and it increases the anxiety. And what I would say is I would try to identify, if any, what are my trigger points? What are those things I tend to be doing or thinking about when these kinds of feelings come up? And then what are the best places for me to, where are the best places for me to be? And what are the best things for me to do while I am in the process of letting those feelings pass through me? Mm. Our next question is from Christina in Savannah, Georgia. This is Christina from Savannah, Georgia. How do you know the difference between being intentional and seeking pleasure? If in an attempt to be intentional and be present in the moment, you, for example, light a candle and play relaxing music while making dinner, which includes taking the time to properly prepare ingredients versus just rushing through to put something on the table, you find gratification. But that's really seeking pleasure in the mundane. And we can't always find pleasure in every aspect of our life. So aren't we setting ourselves up to expect pleasure in attempts to be intentional? Should being intentional always feel good? I'm thinking about the Buddha when he went off for seven years and lived with ascetics and they told him to get rid of desire. And then, but then, of course, you still desire to get rid of desire and it becomes this weird sort of thing. So what I would say is that letting go of desire also involves letting go of the desire to let go. Hmm. Now, hmm. I'm not saying you should let go of desire, but if you're seeking pleasure, that's not the same thing as getting pleasure. Mm -hmm. The same thing as seeking happiness, pursuing happiness is often the path toward misery because that's what hedonism is. And that's why it doesn't work as a, a, a structural framework for a meaningful life. Yes, you will seek pleasure and you will get it. But then, of course, the threshold continues to increase. Yeah. You know, heroin mm. is a slow motion death mm. in, in a way because people... They get high on heroin for the first time mm -hmm. and then their body reaches this state. It's the nerd word is homeostasis, right? Your body figures out like, oh, I have to be able to deal with that. So you never experience the same high. Now, why am I bringing up heroin? Because that is the ultimate sort of yeah. pleasure chase, yeah, right? It's an extreme form of chasing pleasure. pleasure yeah. And, sure. and we can chase pleasure in all of these different ways, including as Christina so beautifully points out. I'm trying to be intentional, but if you're trying to be intentional so that you get pleasure from it, right, that may not actually be the most intentional path. DK, mm. how would you respond? Yeah, I would say intentionality is less about where you end up and more about how you choose to travel there. You can be intentional about the experience of pleasure. You can be intentional about the experience of pain. You can be intentional about pursuing comfort. You can be intentional about pursuing discomfort. What makes it intentional is you saying, 
I choose to be the predominant creative force in my own life. I choose to decide and define what my relationship to this moment and experience will be. That's what makes it an int- intentional. So you can be in a moment and you can say, you know what? I want to make this party or this moment as fun as I can possibly make it for the next 30 minutes. And that's intentionality. But you can also be in a moment where you say, you know what? I'm just not going to have fun in this moment. Kind of like when I was a server at restaurants and maybe I'd have a table that was being really mean to me and I felt really stressed out. And I said, you know what? This isn't going to feel good. But my intention for the moment is to exercise the self-control necessary to be respectful to these people that are not being respectful to me so that when this moment is over, I can look back on it and I can say, I lived as I believed. I lived in accordance with my values. So pleasure doesn't have to be available in the moment in order for you to be intentional. Intentionality is about saying, I assign meaning to my experiences. Mm, I love that. Like you're talking about setting a context and whether you experience pleasure or not, if you are focused on that context, then, uh, yeah, I mean, that seems, I mean, for me, like that's, that's what I was doing that this morning where I was having a rough morning. I'm like, it's so far. I can handle like a car accident. Like this building could come down and I would like arise from it and like start pulling people from it. But like when I wake up and like a couple little things go wrong, there is like this, I think I talked about this a few weeks ago about just this internal rage where I'm like, okay, man, you got you to gotta settle down. So I set my context of like, okay, what do I want to do today? Because I don't want to focus on this, you know, this this, this is anger. Um, but it really has helped me kind of get past that and let it go. Um, you know, the one thing that Christina said is she's like, should, should uh, pleasure be associated with mundane? And mm-hmm. that, th- there are no shoulds. I mean, there are coulds. So yeah. the question is, is like, what could that do for you if yeah. you were able to do that? But, the one thing I'll say is like, I've been kind of dancing with the idea that I I have worked so hard to let go of desires. And I think that's the wrong approach for me. Mm-hmm. Like for me, it's not about letting go of the pleasure, figuring out a way to, it's more about like finding a way to live with it every single day and to manage it and like to dance with it. What Peter Rollins would say is to desire your desire. Yeah. And I think that's where the detente is between the sort of more ascetic point of view where it is about extinguishing the desire. Mm-hmm. And that is one approach. The other approach might be on the other end is just keep getting your desires fulfilled yeah. and then pleasure becomes the main pursuit. Right. That becomes a problem as well. The middle road here is what Ryan's talking about is desiring your desire, seeing your desire for what it is yeah. without needing to constantly fulfill every last desire. Yeah. The problem with pleasure is not pleasure. Pleasure is a beautiful byproduct. Yeah. We cannot live without those dopamine hits. Right. And the, the the problem then becomes we do all of these things to constantly increase the dopamine. It's it it's becomes gor- a chase. It's gorging on pleasure, right? right. Yeah. And and so we can live a healthy life by eating the appropriate amount of food, right? Yeah. But if we're constantly grazing on empty calories all day, mm-hmm. we become unfit, out of shape, unhealthy, diseased. And I think the same thing is true emotionally, psychologically yeah. with pleasure. If we're constantly getting that next dose of pleasure, seeking that pleasure, as mm-hmm. opposed to it being a byproduct it's going to wear us out because we're going to need more and more and more. So the, here's the question. Yeah. Here's where the middle road is. What's enough? 
Mm-hmm. What is enough for you? The only way to find that out is temporary deprivation. Having, you know, not knowing when you're hungry comes only when you've deprived yourself of food long enough to realize that there's a hunger here. Yeah. And by the way, that makes the food so much more enjoyable. Yeah. I find the same thing is true with sex. Mm-hmm. You know, Bex and I live apart half the time. And that increases our desire for one another, mm-hmm. that if we were spending 24 hours a day together, that same level of desire would not be there because we don't make room for it. So can you make room for the desire? Mm-hmm. And if you make yeah. room for the desire, it's going to help you desire the things that nourish you as opposed to pacifying yourself with the empty experience. I love this yeah. example of food because it is something that because we, we wrote a, a, an essay about, you know, food is not entertainment. And for us, that was really important to kind of gain control of our health. And I remember someone kind of wrote a slam piece against it. And they were like, oh, how dare them? Like, you know, um, when, my, when my kids, when they get blueberries and the smiles on their faces, like, what, they're not supposed to enjoy their blueberries? And it's like, well, hold on. There's a difference between entertainment and pleasure and food especially if you're hungry is going to is going to bring some pleasure. So but I but the the sex analogy might even be a little bit more uh more of an apt analogy in the sense that like could you imagine trying to disconnect pleasure from sex? Right. Like if you disconnect if you take the pleasure away from sex, it's real it's a lot of work. You know what I like it, would, it to me it would seem it would just ruin the whole thing. Sounds like Mike Pence. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you talk about your grandfather that way? <laughs> See, not a political podcast. There's nothing this politics. It has to do with uh, yeah. Well, anyway, no, but anyway, but 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 I mean, could you imagine like if someone was asking like, oh, you know what? I I experienced too much pleasure during sex. Should I find a way to disconnect pleasure from sex? Right. And we wouldn't say that, but what we would say is that for the person who is supposedly a sex addict, now whether or not that is a real thing, you know, Dan Savage. Seems to think that it isn't, and he is a, a sex expert. But um, it's different from, say, like heroin addiction for sure, sure right? right? But I don't know. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a good question to ask. It is, it is, right? But here's what I'll say about sex addiction: is that what we're really saying is we want more and more and more and more. We haven't found enough. It's a chase. It is a pleasure chase. Yeah. Bring us home, TK Coleman. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if you're watching a movie and you find yourself being angry at the villain, that's fun. But if you find yourself attacking the actor who plays the villain when you see him on the street, you're missing something. If you're watching a movie and you see Superman save the day and you go, yay, that's fun. If you see the actor who plays Superman on the street and you're like, great job, man, at killing the villains. Thank you so much. You might be missing something. The problem isn't those moments of joy. The problem isn't those moments of sorrow. The problem is when we forget to engage reality with a sense of play and possibility. It's okay to feel pleasure. It's okay to pursue pleasure. But there's wisdom in knowing that those moments of pleasantness don't last forever. And there's wisdom in having a heart and a mind that's prepared to engage those moments with the same sense of play and possibility as the moments that bring you joy. Let's move on to some social media questions. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Francesca from Facebook has a question for us. You recently said every relationship is a doorway to misery and joy. 
Can you explain why misery exists in every relationship? Misery is a pre-existing condition. Uh-oh, I'm worried about my insurance costs. <laughs> That's good. Joy is also a pre-existing condition. So misery and joy are both pre-existing conditions. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, what I mean is that these things exist already within you. Externalities can amplify the joy within you. Externalities can amplify the misery in you. And so every relationship at some point is going to bring out a bit of misery, not because of the other person, but because of the expectations that we've hurled Mm. at the other person. Mm. I think you should do this. You should watch less TV. You should lose weight. You should get a pet. You should have kids. You should go to college. You should take this job. You should want to climb the corporate ladder. You should live in this city. You should behave like me. You You should, you should, you should. We should all over ourselves because, well, we think that other people should be exactly like us. But of course, as soon as we set up a life like that where everyone is exactly like us, we lose all the dynamics of the dance of life. We lose Mm. that tension. We lose the variety. We lose what it means to be a human being. Man, when I heard Mm. you first say every relationship brings misery is I think maybe how you first introduced that concept. Yes. And it was so uncomfortable. And I'm like, I don't, I'm like, I don't agree with this. Mm. Like I think about me and Mariah and like, we have a great relationship, but to unpack it is look like, yeah, you don't want to date yourself. It wouldn't be nearly as much fun to have someone exactly like you, but also uh, whether it's romantic business, friendship, whatever, whatever relationship it is, Yes, there is something that is going to arise within you because of the other person and it's going to be uncomfortable and you could liken it to misery and you're going to have to find a way to work through that. There is no such thing as a relationship that doesn't create some type of discomfort. And I think once you can accept that, like it actually helps, it it has helped me to actually deal with that a little bit better because when Mariah does something that I'm like, oh, you know, wish she would have done it that way or whatever it is. And that arises within me instead of me being like, well, why can't she just? And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, man. Mm-hmm. Like, why can't you just? Right. Mm-hmm. Also, the discomfort thing is, is fascinating because we presuppose discomfort is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I was at the gym last night mm-hmm. and it's pretty uncomfortable. In fact, you know, the soreness that I feel today, mm-hmm. if I were to wake up with this kind of soreness and I hadn't gone to the gym, I would need to go to like an emergency room or something because mm. it's like, oh my God, what's wrong with my body? I, I can't. And so context is everything here. Mm. We actually, when we seek discomfort intentionally, what does that do for us? It actually helps us grow both literally and figuratively. We're able to grow only when we reach that discomfort zone. When we bubble wrap the world and make everything mm. comfortable, mm. it actually makes us atrophy. Mm. Yeah. You know, what I would say to this is the ingredients don't bake the cake. There's no circumstance so wonderful. Tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> There's no circumstance so wonderful that you couldn't possibly process it in a way that makes you feel terrible. There's no person so beautiful and so amazing that you couldn't possibly react and respond to them in a way that makes you feel miserable. You can never take the you out of experience. 
what you bring to the experience will always affect what you get out of that experience. And so the meaning that we get out of relationships, the love that we get out of relationships will be a reflection, at least in part, of our own patterns of relating, our own patterns of observing, reacting, responding, playing, creating, expressing, communicating, and so on. And so if you're looking for the perfect relationship, no matter how wonderful that person is, even if you found the perfect relationship, it would cease to be perfect when you arrive there, right? You are opening that doorway to possibility that says, I can experience joy or misery because every interaction with them is going to be an opportunity to create one or both of those outcomes. Mm. Too often we are seeking another person to complete us. Mm -hmm. I love what Dan Savage says about this. Like We're always looking for the one, but maybe we should be looking for the 0.64 or the 0.73 yeah. that we can round up to one. Yeah. But we can only do that when we ourselves are complete because I'm already one. Integer means integrate, right? means a whole, means I am a whole person. I am already one, right? Mm -hmm. But then I bring someone else in my life and they're a 0.64 or a 0.73 or a 0.88 and I round them up to one. But guess what? One times one is still yeah. what? Mm. It's still one. And so you are already the one. Pursuing someone else will amplify your life. You have that community. You have that, that sense of camaraderie. You have the ability to communicate with them. Yeah. You get to do this. Mm. But when we show up in a relationship because we have to do it, oh, that's where that misery comes. Now, mm. what is that what is that birth from? It's birth from our ceaseless expectations. Yeah. And I'm saying this not from a a place of being without expectations. I pick up expectations and hurl them at people all the time. The difference now is I begin to see when I do that. And I understand that those expectations aren't real. It's a story that I've created. And I've said, if Ryan doesn't do these 11 things, then I will be unhappy. Well, okay. Mm. Why? Well, it's because I've told myself that I should be unhappy. You know, I wonder how much of, of, of this, not for the, the, the questioner, but when it comes to this topic, sometimes you hear people say, hey, if it doesn't feel easy, it ain't right. For instance, you hear, you hear this a lot in entrepreneurship where people say, once you find something that you love, you'll never work another day in your life. Now, I know what they mean. Mm -hmm. I know what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. There is a charitable interpretation of that that everyone needs to listen to and learn from, right? When you find something that you love, there's something about that work that doesn't quite feel like work in the way other things feel like work. However, it is also true that when you do what you love, that will actually be the hardest work in other ways that you'll ever do in your life. You will make sacrifices and compromises and experience all sorts of creative challenges that only exist when you're fighting the battle of doing the things that your soul like sings to do. And I think there's something similar with relationships. There is such a thing as a toxic relationship where you notice the red flags and you got to get the heck out. But even those relationships that feel easy, they come along with their own unique challenges as well. And you can't just automatically conclude failure or red flag just because you're dealing with difficulties when you interact with someone. And if you kind of have this expectation that, you know, 
I, I haven't found a love worth having or a partner worth being with unless everything feels easy. You're setting yourself up for misery because in every relationship, you're going to have those challenges that say, hey, I'm the ingredient. What are you going to make with me? Mm. Yeah, I uh, I can't tell you like how many, you know, girls I dated in the past thinking that, yeah, they were going to complete me and they were going to make me happy. And um, yeah, it's interesting that... Uh, I don't know, man. Like, I don't, hey, I don't know why you'd ever thrust that onto someone, mm-hmm. but I don't know why why I would lie to myself. Like, especially when I got before I got married, it was a, you know, it was a. Um, I'm trying not to talk bad about my ex wife because she's a lovely person. It was not her; it was me. But there was a point where she was like, you know, um, I'm getting older. She was 18. I'm getting <laughs> older, and uh, we, we, you know, it's we we got to either break up or get married. It's one or the other. I'm like, oh, okay, we'll get married because that'll make it better. Yes. And and then it got to a point where we were like, oh, maybe we'll have a kid and that'll make it better. Mm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until, you know, a decade later where I was like, oh, like I actually have to feel complete myself before. Yes, I can bring someone else into my life to accent my life. And it's it's interesting, too. I had a friend I was talking about who they, they just split up with their, their spouse and they were like, man, I love him so much. I'm like, yeah, but did you like him? Mm. And they're like, no, like that's why that's why I had to let it go. And it made me think that love without like is a fruitless contract. Yeah. Well, it's it's possible to love someone. Mm-hmm. That's what we often call being in love. To see someone for who they are without trying to change them, but not being able to spend much time with that person. Mm. I'm going to talk to you a little, a little bit about this revelation I had about my own introversion and liking myself as well. We have another question here from Arjit on Instagram. I've been struggling with improving communication in my relationship. When something needs attention, I say it, and it turns into an argument. When I don't say much, she thinks I'm not showing my real feelings. Any advice? Wow. Feelings. (laughs) I would say, don't make it so binary, Arjit. This is a very binary thing that you're presenting. Um, Yeah, like, what are the two options Right, and when you make things binary, like, if I do this, I'm screwed. If I do that, I'm screwed. And if that's your attitude, well, then you're screwed. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah. is there a middle road here? What I would say is that the middle road for me in these scenarios, mm-hmm. when it's not, even if it's not binary and it's a spectrum of, of these things, it, I've realized that feelings are better witnessed than displayed. Mm. Mm. So I can witness my feeling. I'm feeling sadness right now. In mm. fact, I would even rephrase that and say, you know, sad, there is sadness, right? Yeah. And that sadness is appearing because it's not I'm sad. It's that I am feeling sadness. I'm witnessing that, right? Or I am witnessing anger right now. When that turns into rage, when it is displayed, my anger is displayed, that is always escalating. It's like when you are getting, when you get into a fight with someone in public and you begin to escalate toward violence, not only does it make you feel unsafe, and the, but it makes the people around you feel unsafe as well. And so whenever we're escalating, we're actually making it less safe to communicate with the people we love the most. Mm, that's right. Sometimes the best time to express your frustration with another person is when you're not in the heat of the moment, feeling frustrated with that other person. And it can be easy to say, well, let me address it now while I'm feeling so hot about it. Let me address it now while it's on my mind. And if you can do that effectively, do it effectively. But for this question, that's clearly not working. And I would say witness the emotion, but then walk away and come back later 
and have a meta level conversation about these types of things when you're not in the middle of being mad. I would suggest sitting down and saying, hey, I'm not upset right now about anything particular, but I want to be honest about the fact that we're not always going to like everything that the other does. And we're going to have moments where we might annoy each other. I feel like in the past, when I've tried to be transparent about my feelings and bring things up, it's led to an argument. I acknowledge that there may, may be something about the way I'm communicating that's causing that. What I would like to know right now is not how can I fix what's wrong with you, but what is the best way for me to bring up something to you that I don't like? Mm. I mean, that's a beautiful conversation. Yeah. And you can give your partner the opportunity to share those same things with you. That's a meta-level conversation that's not about anything particular, but it's an opportunity for both parties to get on the table what way of communicating what uh, works best for them when they're being corrected, when they're being challenged, when something is being explained to them. Yeah. And what I like about this approach, CK, is it helps it helps someone who is upset uh, to approach the conversation with the the nonviolent communication. Yeah. And so walking away gives gives you the ability to not let that anger or dissatisfaction or whatever that discomfort is, it, it, it takes the sharpness away from that. Right. But but Arjit, I would, you know, even before you talk to your wife, like I would, I would go through some of those conversations that you've had with them and ask yourself, like, how did you talk to that person? Because I know with, uh, with Mariah, if I go to her and I, and I'm like, why did you do this? You did this thing. And now I feel this way. What's up? Like, that's not going to get me in. That's going to put her on the defense and yeah. we're not going to get anywhere. But if I go to her and I say, Hey, honey. Um, man, we've been together for so long. Like, I, I need to share something with you that I know you're going to like really, uh, you're going to hear and you're going to help me with. And I do need your help on this. But, you know, the other day, I really felt like when this thing was done, that um, I felt I felt a little disrespected or, you know, whatever it is. Now I'm taking the you out of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting an I into it. And that is always going to be a much better approach than just putting someone on the defense. So yes, when you have mm. these tough situations, if it's your partner, like you really want to work together to figure it out. I mean, uh, and I don't, I don't know how you and I have, you know, not erupted into like fights, but I think it's because of that, man. Like we really respect each other's preferences mm -hmm. and we never thrust it onto someone else or we never thrust it on each other. If we have an issue, it's like, um, like Josh, this morning, he's like, hey, um, can we go ahead and like just be here five minutes early so we can do this and, and, and everything go on time? And because I know how important it is for Josh to be right on time with things, I'm like, yeah, let's do that. He wasn't like, you guys are pissing me off. You're showing up, whatever it is. He, 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 he doesn't do that. And I don't do that with him either. And TK, I'm sure we'll have disagreements as well that we'll have to talk out too. <laughs> well, I'll just say this. You'll notice the difference there was I asked a question. Yeah. And getting inquisitive. Hey, would you guys be willing to show up five minutes earlier so that we can do this is way better than, hey, you need to be here at this time. Right. Because yeah. that doesn't leave up any po possibility because here's the truth. If I asked you that and you said, well, actually, there's a good reason why we can't. Mm -hmm. Now we can have this conversation. Let's, yeah. let, let's try to adjust together. It becomes a, a dance, not a decorous dance mm. between the, the two of us. We don't do it for a formality, but it is a dance so I can understand you. The only way I can understand is if I start asking those questions and they're meaningful questions. 
as opposed to directing. Because if it becomes about you, 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 it's blaming. And that's, I see that in the heart of Arjit's question here. He doesn't mean to, mm-hmm. but and neither does his partner, but they are blaming each other, mm. pointing the fingers as opposed to, ah, oh, if you're watching the video version, I'm just holding my hands up. Oh, help me understand. Yeah. And if you can help me understand, then we can get to some place. It's not a compromise, by the way. Mm-hmm. Compromises generally don't work. Because here's what will happen with a compromise. I'll say, Ryan, we should do A. And he's like, screw that, man. We should do B. And then we end up doing C. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't work out for whatever reason. And I'm like, C, we should have done A. You're like, no, C, we should have done B. Yeah. That's why compromise doesn't work. But instead of compromising, asking questions until we get on the same page, mm-hmm. that's no longer a compromise. We've arrived at the destination together. One other yeah. thing. That, one other thing that I... Uh, like the context I try to hold. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but to de-escalate any type of argument, I really go out of my way to not take things personally. So um, I know that when I, when anger or frustration arises within me, I get a certain tone that I, I can't help. It's like a very matter of fact. And um, sometimes Mariah will be like, you know, uh, why, are you, why are you talking to me this way? And I'm like, I, I don't know how else to talk right now. Like, I'm so sorry. Um, but it's not, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of, uh, um, you know, have that conversation with her. And the same thing happens where she will get a certain tone where I instantly will start to take offense to it. And then I'll ask her the same thing. She's like, no, just like you, I just can't control my tone right now. I'm like, oh, okay. So uh, we learned that early in our relationship. So now when that happens, like I really work hard to not take offense. And if you could like start there, that would that would probably help you too, Arjit, with not letting these conversations escalate so much. One big thing that Josh exhibits very well is you have to be clear on the outcome you want. You have to have a clear vision for yourself of what is the result that makes you satisfied. And I think it could be helpful to not only think about the outcome you want, but what's an alternative outcome that you can live with or that you'd be satisfied with. And it's important to separate that outcome from a judgmental prescription of the other person. So the outcome, hey, I want to make sure we start at 10 o'clock so that everything runs smoothly is different from you need to be on time. Mm, You need to be on time is a prescription and it may be an accurate prescription, but it's more likely to generate defensiveness than me articulating an outcome that I'm passionate about. I want us to start on time so that everything can run smooth and everyone can leave early rather than you need to be on time. And you also have to separate outcome from theories that you might form as to why the other person is being the way they're being. I need you to stop being disrespectful. I, you know, I need you to stop, you know, I need you to be more sensitive to this or that. Just Here's the outcome that I'm trying to create. How can we work together to get there? Ryan, what time is it? Oh, Josh, you know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages. You can text your questions, your comments, your compliments, your CompuSalts. You can text all those things (laughs) to 937-202-4654. Yes, indeed. Now, during the lightning round, this is where we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable Less than 140 character response. We put a minute on the clock for each of us so we can ramble on a little bit. By the way, we copy and share our pithy quotes on social media. You can find all of our Minimal Maxims in the show notes and over at minimalmaxims.com. Thanks to our good friend, Social Jess. 
Looks like Lehigh has a question for us. I struggle with managing anger towards what I perceive as wrongdoing or injustice. Any ideas on how to deal with this? Let's put 60 seconds on the clock for Ryan Nicodemus. <laughs> I was just reading yours. Yours is great. Uh, yes, my, my, my pithy answer is this. Radical inclusion requires complete acceptance. So I, this came to me. Uh, because of LA traffic, honestly, like I have really <laughs> been going out of my way to just accept the fact that Los Angeles is the way it is. There's, you know, 12 million people in LA County and uh, you're going to have people who don't know how to drive. So the other day, um, yesterday, we pull up to get on the 405. Um, there's this Porsche behind me kind of riding my butt on the exit and then the lane splits to go to the two red lights and it's, you know, alternating green lights, one car per person. Right. Um, so I pull up to the red light and this guy just like goes around me and runs the red light. And I am instantly like this entitled jerk, blah, blah. But then I'm like, no, man, radical inclusion, baby. Like how? What's the compassionate approach? What's the charitable approach to this situation? And I was like, oh, this, this dude doesn't feel like he has enough. And how, how, how he must feel to just constantly take all the time. Yeah. All right. I got the buzzard, so I'm done. <laughs> Let's throw another 60 seconds on the clock for TK Coleman. Feelings are not there to be conquered. They are there to be engaged with imagination. I like that you feel bothered by injustice. If you're on a bus and you see some teenage kid push an old lady aside just so he can get the last bus seat, I like that that bothers you. We need somebody in this world to be bothered by the attacks and the assaults that go against human dignity. We need somebody in this world who can observe tragedy and say, you know what? I don't like that. And I don't like pretending like I'm okay with that. We could all go get lobotomies right now and not have any feelings, negative or positive, and just be in some state of passive peace. But we need people in this world who get angry. And that anger is not there to be exercised. That anger is there to be engaged with creativity. How can I channel those feelings of anger along constructive lines so that I can step up and do something about the things that need to be done? That's what we need. I don't think I could handle another lobotomy. Professor Sean, give me 60 seconds here. Ryan, I love what you were saying earlier about the Porsche that cut you off Mm -hmm. because you can get mad about that. Mm-hmm. You can see that injustice and you can get really frustrated by it. And now you're punishing yourself for his bad behavior. Yeah. Mm. And as soon as we realize that, we can laugh at the absurdity of it. Maybe he did something that was creating some sort of micro injustice. Mm-hmm. But that injustice is not, does not give me an excuse to make myself miserable. I can let it go. And that's so important with respect to my pithy answer, which is this. Mo expectations, mo emotions. (laughs) Now, we all know about mo money, mo problems, right? And here's what happens, though. I'm going to feel all of these different emotions that I don't necessarily want to feel. I'm open myself up for anger, for sadness, for depression, for despair, for guilt, for rage, if I have all of these different expectations. But if I declutter those expectations... Ah, I ran out of time. <laughs> you even got the clock in front of you. Oh, you can finish that thought, <laughs> Here's what I'll say. If I, if I have more and more and more expectations, I'm going to make room for the emotions I don't. If I declutter those mm-hmm. expectations, what I actually make room for is contentment. 
peace. I'm uncovering the pre-existing peace that is already there. Can Before I ask we, you guys a question, please? Go please, for it. Please. Do, have either of you ever been in a situation, especially you, Josh, where your anger led you to do something about it that was positive? No. Anger led to do something. I know you got one from Burning positive. Man, but I don't know if you want to tell it. And I'm, yeah, I we guess already I'm did that. Spot. We're out of time. No, man. Like when he saw somebody doing something inappropriate, he can tell this in 30 seconds. No, I already told that story. I'll you t- didn't tell that story. Yeah, he did. He told it all on the podcast. About the dude doing the thing. And he was like, if you do that With again, flag? I'm going to punch yeah. you in the face. With the flag? I, I thought you were telling me that offline. No. No. Uh, oh, I don't know. He was taking pictures that he shouldn't have been taking. Oh. You really don't remember this? No. Like, I'm going to punch you in the face or something Oh, like no. That. This was, okay, this was at oh, Edge Fest. Oh, yeah. In oh. Dayton. And yes, this dude was groping women, basically. And I went up to him and I was like, if I see you touch, because women were crowd surfing. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went up to him. I'm like, if you touch another woman, I'm going to punch you in the face. He was like, what? And I'm like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't have to talk about it anymore. If I see you do it again, I'm going to put you in a headlock and embarrass you in front of all these people. <laughs> and he stopped. Yeah. He did I'm, stop. I'm glad he got bothered. That was worth the extra 30 anyway, seconds, brother. Right. Thank you. No, I, I, think, I think it's worth saying that our anger can lead us down a direction toward a, product, a productive outcome. Mm-hmm. However, if we cling to that anger, mm. it's going to escalate things in a way that that actually prevent us from going the direction which we want to go. So mm-hmm. anger is data that will often point us in the direction of quote unquote justice, right? We got a lot more to talk about. In fact, Ryan, I want to disagree with you about something coming up here a little bit on our talk aboutable segment. Dun, 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 dun. But first, <laughs> Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hey, y'all. This is Emily Stewart from Florence, South Carolina, and I wanted to share a tip. So I've been a minimalist my entire life, even as a kid, but I find myself thinking that I don't have anything to get rid of because I'm a minimalist. So I came up with a game with myself that kind of helps me to keep cleaning things out. I often shop at Trader Joe's and Aldi's and I bring my own bags, but sometimes I forget and end up having to grab the paper bags at checkout. So my new rule for myself is every time I do this, I have to fill up the paper bags with things from my home to give away or sell. So although forgetting my own bags isn't good for the environment, it turned into a great way to consistently clear out and help keep it fun for me and fresh, even though I am, have been a minimalist for so long. Mary Rose Coughlin, Vernon, Connecticut. Um, so that's happened to me several times where I've lost a great deal of money in a pocket that I gave away or tipping from the wrong pocket when I had money traveling. And I like to think that that person needed the money more than I did. So whether you say God wanted them to have it or the power of the universe knew they needed it, that person needed the money more than you did. And you're blessed to have an opportunity to share it with them. Welcome back to The Minimalists. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn here with TK Coleman, Ryan Nicodemus, Alabama, the rest of our team. Before we get into our other simple living segments, and even before we get into our more about less segment, I thought we would continue by talking about anger and the productivity of anger, since we were talking Mm -hmm. about that during the lightning round, TK. Tell them why you mad, son. (laughs) (laughs) And so we did a whole episode on anger, but I thought it'd be interesting to maybe expand for, I don't know, two or three minutes about 
anger leading to something productive. Mm-hmm. I found that, you know, it's just like using a, the analogy I think of is fire, right? Which correlates very well with anger, mm-hmm. right? Fire isn't good or bad. Anger isn't good or bad. But in many scenarios, we want to avoid fire because it turns into something that is awful. Mm-hmm. You know, we lived in Missoula, Montana for a long time. And it's great to go make a campfire or yeah. if you have a wood stove or whatever. But mm-hmm. when there's 500,000 acres on fire and you can't breathe, that's a different type of, of problem. Yeah. And I think that's often what happens with anger. It turns, we got this little bit of kindling yeah. and it turns into this giant conflagration, this forest fire that now is out of control. And I cycle through in my mind. And so, yes, I may be in, I may be, angered by an injustice. I may be pissed off at someone or at something, but if I continue to escalate that anger, we see it now, especially with social media. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel productive when I'm yelling and pointing and now you're yelling and pointing. It doesn't make room for any sort of conversation at all. But if I can see the Mm -hmm. anger as data and I can engage in a conversation without that anger, I don't bring the anger to the forefront man, maybe I could find something, uh, uh, I could find some common ground with you. But the anger is yeah. a symptom. Like it is a symptom of something much deeper. No one's just angry. You feel disrespected. You feel misunderstood. An expectation was let down. So in that sense, like anger can be useful because you can probably dig a little bit deeper and see what it is. But, you know, I think I was trying to think of another example where anger maybe did something. I'm thinking about Josh and Bex. They're sitting at this uh, cafe on the outside and this guy comes up and for all intents and purposes, like flashes himself to Bex. And Josh is like, oh, I'm angry. You're disrespecting us. And now I have to now I have to like protect my partner and myself. And to that extent, like, yeah, anger drove him to protect them. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's an example of where anger is useful. Right. But if anger then turned into violence in a way that is avoidable violence, right. I'm, I'm not against violence as you know, self-protection, right? Protecting mm-hmm. myself, self-defense. Mm-hmm. Are you guys uh, talking about Will Smith and Chris Rock right now? It's <laughs> <laughs> like you're talking about it, but not talking about it. <laughs> but I think it's a, a, a prime example of anger. One might argue unnecessary anger popping up in it in will and then it turning into rage escalating in a way that well i mean ruined his shot at, at having the most well i guess it was still the most memorable night of his life right yeah but for all the wrong reasons by the way without going into that i think he could have had the ultimate alpha moment if he would have just stayed in his seat and been like keep my wife's name out of your mouth because you know Chris Rock would have backed down mm-hmm. you know um, he would have been like you know I will I will right and that would have been so alpha because we would have saw him get mad that would have made everybody a little bit uncomfortable but he keeps his composure and doesn't get up out of his seat he doesn't put his hands on him and give anybody an excuse to be distracted from what's going on I don't like what you're saying I mean how many hecklers call out comedians and lose that battle. Mm-hmm. He would have been the one heckler to call out a comedian and make the comedian stand down. Mm-hmm. I think people would have looked at like Will as like, man, this is a bad boy. You don't want to make Will mad, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was the assuming that this whole thing wasn't made up in order to get ratings for the Oscars, you know? Um, you know, it, it, it was the uh, the loss of control part. But hey, getting off that, because I always feel just a little bit dumber 
when I focus on those types of things. <laughs> um, I, 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 feel like I, I feel like I'm losing my soul just yeah, piece man. by piece. Like, why am I? Why? Each, each second that I spend talking about those kinds of things, like, oh, I just lost two pounds of my soul. So yeah. let's bring it back. I love the fire analogy because the same anger that could be used to burn a house can also be used to cook a meal or warm a family. But you pointed out the critical uh, difference, and that is, is it out of control? It's the unharnessed anger, right? Um, because sometimes we want to create the fire. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we say, hey, man, we need to cook this food or we need to warm everybody up. And we actually want to create fire. And so the fire is this thing that has the capacity for destruction. It has the capacity for nourishment. But the question is, what are we going to do with and about that fire? And that's a question we have to continually hold before our anger. Okay, fine. I feel upset about that. Yes. What am I going to do with that? What am I going to do about that? Am I going to use that anger to nourish my family? Am I going to use that anger to articulate my passion for justice? Am I going to use that anger to challenge myself and those around me to be better? Or am I going to sit here and let this anger consume me? Or am I going to react to it in a way that's driven by impulse and leads me to do something that I eventually regret? You're talking about the distinction between Martin Luther King and Jesse Smollett. Both of them were angry at injustices, right? Mm. Mm. Martin Luther King harnessed that anger in a way to march literally and figuratively for civil rights, right? Jesse Smollett said, I am anger. I, 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 oh, actually, he was anger. I am anger, yeah, right? Right. And so, by any means necessary, I'm going to try to bring attention to this subject that I'm angry about, even if it requires lying, fabricating, mm. because that's what anger anger often does to us. It brings us out of reality and brings us into this imaginary world where everything is an affront toward us, right? And in a weird way, anger is extremely egocentric when we cling on to it. We cling to it. Yeah, as opposed to yeah. using it for our greater good. And as a compliment to that thought, the demonization of anger can also be used for manipulation. Yes. Right? If, if, if you're holding me accountable for something that I made an agreement to fulfill, hey, you know, stop being so angry when you're taking me to task, when mm. I should be, taking me to t- should be taking a task. Hey, calm down, man. Stop being so angry. Stop being so angry. But you know what? Sometimes, man, you got the right to feel that way. That doesn't mean you have the right to disrespect other people. It's it's like the old saying, your right to clench your fists ends at the point where it meets my face, right? You got the right to feel however you feel and that's Mm. cool, but that doesn't give you the right to violate other people's rights. But sometimes, man, people will tell you that you shouldn't be angry and that's because they personally feel intimidated by your capacity to create changes that make them comfortable, that mm. undermine a status quo that they themselves have been pacified by. Mm. Yeah. When does that advice work? Calm down. Works every time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't think of that. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the point here is don't divinize anger. Don't demonize it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah see it as data on a spreadsheet. And when you look at it that way, now all of a sudden, in a weird way, you're taking the anger out of the anger. Mm. Yeah. And it's pointing you toward 
a direction in which to travel. Mm. Let's move on to more about less. This is a little segment we do where we read something as a jump off point for discussion. TK sent me uh, this tweet from Sam Parr. You want to read this for us, TK? TK's tweet of the week. Uh. <laughs> he was proposing a new segment. I'm like, I, I, I know, I just realized that. And, and, and that's all I wanted. I mean, we give it to me. That's all I wanted. I was <laughs> like, we already got TK's corner here, man. I, he doesn't know about that yet. We'll get there. Oh, but um, I was like, we already have that segment. It's called More About Less. We've right. been doing it for five years. TK's tweet of the week. All right, but what? yeah, but I, I just wanted to jingle, man. Hey, man like, yeah. Can a man jingle? Um, hey, you know what? I can su- a brother jingle? I support your jingling. You can jingle or jangle. TK, I, I still love you. Get jingle with it. <laughs> All right. Okay. This is from <laughs> Danny Unleash. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this tweet is from Sam Parr at the Sam Parr with two R's. And he says, my man, DH, user DH Harmesh, had an interesting insight. When Olympians are obsessed with training, we think, how amazing, so dedicated, inspiring. But when people are obsessed with their work slash job, people think, how sad. You need a life. You need balance. Hmm. This is an interesting perspective because Mm -hmm. I am a big fan of obsession and devotion. And when I read this at first, you know, when Olympians are obsessed with training, I think they're not really obsessed with the training so much as they're obsessed with whatever the thing is that they do. So say you're a basketball player, mm-hmm. right? You're obsessed like Kobe Bryant. He, was, he never practiced. Mm-hmm. He was obsessed with basketball. And so he was just, he allowed his obsession to guide him every morning, every evening. And it's laudable. Although I will, the only pushback I would have for something like this is you see something like Tom Brady now, who is in a semi-public feud with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> because she's like, hey, the, you've already retired twice or whatever. You have the most Super Bowl rings out of any quarterback. Yeah. Right. And I thought you were going to retire. And now, like, uh, I've made all these sacrifices for our family. And now you're not living up to your side of the bargain. And so I understand both sides of this sure. because he's obsessed with football. He can't not do it. Right. Yeah. Like he's. Yeah. And and so for him, it's obviously not about money. I mean, yes, he'll make more money. He can own a team, whatever. But if you have 700 million versus 2 billion, your life does not change at all, right? Your children's lives and your grandchildren's lives also don't change at all Mm -hmm. at that level. What we're really talking about here is an obsession, a Mm. devotion to something that makes him feel the most alive. Now, you can look at that and say, well, it's really unfortunate that you maybe are excluding other people around you in order to devote all of your time to an obsession. Mm. But most people, you're right, TK. And Sam is right too. We often look at the people we aspire to be like and crown their obsession as though it is this ultimate good, right? Mm. And But with your average person, if they work 60 hours a week, it's like, oh, you don't have any work-life balance. What's What's wrong with you? That's so funny because I Mm. don't like that tweet doesn't land with me because like Mm. I respect people who dig in like that. And if anything, it's like I would ask them, are you digging into the right thing? Are you are you obsessing about the right thing? And if it's the right thing for them. But like I I, I've never if in fact the opposite, like especially in the corporate world, when I saw, you know, other people, Josh and his bosses and our and our bosses bosses 
obsessing for 60 to 80 hours a week. I wasn't like, you losers. I was like, oh, wow. Like that's commitment. Mm -hmm. I want to be obsessive like that. And I did. And it was miserable. And I look at myself like you loser. But but all I'm saying is, is like for me, like I don't ever, that's just me. Maybe I'm like the, you know, small percentage that doesn't assume that. But I've, I've never looked at anyone and been like, you work too much. You don't understand work-life balance. The, I appreciate yeah. obsession in, in whatever form it's in personally. Maybe the difference with Olympian athletes or entertainers and everyday people is we clearly see examples of it being worth it for them, mm. right? We have that moment where we see that Olympian athlete with the gold medal and the smile on their face, like it was worth it. We have that moment where we see the person holding up the Oscar and they're mm. crying and they're like, every moment that I went through this, every moment that I went through that, thank you, mom, thank you, dad. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that was worth it. I respect them for going through that. But when we see the average person who's working 60, 70 hours a week, it's not like they're holding up their paycheck like, oh, man, everything I went through all the time mm. I didn't spend with my kids. It was worth it. I'm mm. so alive. Mm. We hear people saying, man, I'm just so tired. Mm. I wish I didn't have to work so much. We hear them complaining about their bosses and so on. And so maybe we're not reacting to the fact that people are working so hard. We're reacting to the fact that people seem to be working so hard in the absence of joy, in the absence of, of some end towards which that hustle is a genuine, valuable means. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the weird thing about all of those snapshots, though, is the gold medal by itself is merely a representation. It is a mm. trophy that points towards something that happened in the past, whether it was five minutes ago, five yeah. decades ago. It's pointing toward the thing that already happened, right? So you can see that snapshot of the Olympic athlete on the podium with their yeah. gold medal, there's an equivalent for everyone, right? You can see the smiling faces in the picture frame or on the mm. picture that's on your fridge. And how is that any different from that? Well, it's just because we've told ourselves a different mm. story. This type of joy is greater than this type of joy. Mm. And that mm. is an illusion to a great extent. In fact, when you get into the etymology of, of measure uh, and you go back to the Greek and then the Sanskrit root of measure, it shares a, a, a root with the word illusion. Mm. So everything that we're measuring, we're actually measuring the illusions, the stories, the things that we make up about our own lives. Dude, that is, that's deep. Yeah, that's that good. good. That's that good. good. So uh, I think about when I first even thought about putting in those hours, um, working for my dad, and working at these really nice houses, I saw happy families. I saw uh, happy wives. I saw big houses, nice houses, um, pools, and all these all, all of these things. It was a byproduct of this this person, man or woman, putting in the work to provide this for their family. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. So I don't know what I'm trying to say here as much as like I'm trying to get to where I've looked at someone and judged them for working too much. And uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm just going back to like, I really have never, I've really never, I've resented myself for working too much for sure and judge myself. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's less about the judgment of other people. And it's more about we, we make, we divinize as uh, TK said earlier, the, the Olympic, yeah. yeah the, mm. the, the supposed success of athletes and entertainers. Yeah. And yet we somewhat demonize the, I mean, there's even a term for it, 
workaholic. Mm. We don't say Kobe Bryant was a workaholic, mm. right? But Johnny Jump Up, who works for Verizon, mm-hmm. is a workaholic. Yeah. And is that usually a pejorative when we use that? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah. That's so funny. I used to wear yeah. it as a badge of honor. Mm. Right. I'm a workaholic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I kind of defended that earlier by saying maybe sometimes it's because of the misery we see that people that many people have towards their jobs. But I think there's a flip side to that where sometimes we stereotype certain careers as being intrinsically more meaningful, intrinsically more creative, because that's what they are for us, right? So being a musician, being an artist, creating your own schedule and having a lot of freedom, that's very outwardly appealing. And for some people, that is like the image of the good life for them. And so when they see someone who works a desk job or sits at a cubicle or has a lot of structure working nine to five or works as an accountant, they can't imagine being happy in that sort of life. And they just assume, oh, that person's selling their souls. And you hear a lot of young people sometimes talk like that. I don't want to be someone. I don't want to be one of these people who sits at a desk and, you know, works at a computer all day and just like, you know, lives that kind of life and works a nine to five. And you don't have to be that. Follow your heart. But at the same time, be careful about despising everyone who has a life that looks like your image of a nightmare, because for some of those people, there's no shame in their game. For some of those people, they're doing what they really value. It's a perfect segue to our first talkaboutables segment here. I'm calling this a little sub-segment. This is TK's Corner. <laughs> corner with a K. Oh, I don't have a jingle for that. <laughs> TK's Corner. Let's just give him Tweet of the Week, too, man. I mean, let's just give him TK's Tweet of the Week. Whatever he wants, man. I, I Let f- the people decide. <laughs> That's right. Bring it to the people. I follow an Instagram account called Humans of Capitalism. And people often hmm. reach out to us as the minimalists. And they want us to take a hard stance against capitalism. Yeah. And here's what I'll say. We need to define what capitalism is. So TK, I want to talk to you about the problems or specifically the problem with capitalism. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about this Instagram account that I follow. It's called Humans of Capitalism. Mm. And there is this image. Jordan, I'm going to have you find it and put it on the screen in in post-production here. There is this picture, which I'll describe if you're just listening to the audio version of the podcast. It's a picture of desk chairs, but they are shaped like coffins. So it's coffin-shaped desk chairs. And Wow. I saw this. And, and what I think about when I see that image is, yeah, many of us are doing something where we're not really living. And if you're not really living, then one might say you're dying. So you're not literally dead there at the desk chair. But then I see the other side of it. As a writer, I sit down every day and and many of the times I feel most alive is at a desk chair. So it's not binary. It's not that if you sit in a desk chair, therefore you are not living life. But it is that, oh, it's calling out the one of of the problems with capitalism is if I put money first, Hmm. if I'm interested in value extraction more than I am with value creation. Those are two different types of capitalism. So let me hand it to you, TK, by saying this. I think we need to talk about what is capitalism because we can use capitalism as a pejorative. And when someone uses it pejoratively, what they're really talking about, I think, is crony capitalism Mm. or the use of people in order to make money. We've turned profit into our God, value extraction into our God. The other side of capitalism is this, value creation. 
or what Ryan and you and I call adding value to our audience. Or if you are a big business, you can still add value to customers. And we appreciate that when people add value to our lives. When I can buy a product or service in a way that is not coercive or manipulative, and you're providing that service for me, well, that's the type of capitalism that works. But there's this other side, and it's an ugly side. That yeah. really doesn't work. And I have a big problem with that. And I was hoping you could help me flesh this out. Yeah, you should have a big problem with that. So I prefer the term voluntarism over capitalism, because even though there is a way to define capitalism that is perfectly consistent with my economic philosophy, the root of the word capitalism is capital. And so when people think of capitalism, it has this negative connotation of meaning the exaltation of profits over people, pursuing capital at the expense of compassion, creativity, and goodwill towards other human beings. Mm. And that is a philosophy I disavow. I do not support any economic philosophy that says it's all about the money. And if you got the chance to screw people over and do unethical things in order to get a little bit richer, I want you to be able to do those things. Absolutely not. And in some debates and discussions on capitalism, that word strikes me as being hopelessly lost to that understanding. And so Sometimes it can be best to just adopt the new vocabulary because when people don't think they already know what you're going to say, there's a higher probability that they'll actually listen and they'll judge you on your actual words rather than associations of your words with someone that they know they disagree with. Mm -hmm. For me, voluntarism or rather positive capitalism, which is different from corporatism or crony capitalism, Mm -hmm. is any economic condition that has three, three elements. Number one, Customer accountability, that businesses don't just get to profit independently of their ability to satisfy customers, create value for them and solve problems for them. They can't hide behind regulations and laws that allow them to be profitable in spite of the fact that their customers aren't happy with their service. To quote Milton Friedman, he says, in a true free market, you're not only free to succeed, but you're also free to fail. So if a business is not free to fail, because they're being artificially insulated from customer accountability by regulations, then that's not truly voluntarious. Freedom of competition. Can someone else, even the little guy, enter the market and at least try to compete with you at providing the service that you provide? There are many larger corporations that actually love regulations because they can afford the regulations. They can set aside millions of dollars in their budget every year Mm -hmm. to hire lobbyists who do nothing more than try to advocate for regulations that sound good rhetorically, but that actually make it artificially difficult for the little guy, the small player, to come in and compete with them. So although the rhetoric of most regulations, it's almost always to protect the little guy because you just can't sell anything without that rhetoric. Many of the biggest supporters of of that kind of rhetoric are the big players that can afford all of the legal fees and so on to make it hard for people to compete with them. The third element is freedom of consumer choice. As a customer, do I have to buy your product no matter how much you dissatisfy me? Or am I free to express my dissatisfaction by saying, you know what, I'm gonna take my money elsewhere and I'm gonna pay this person who actually treats me with respect or who makes me feel valued. If you can use the power of law, big guy, big corporation, to take those options away from me so that no matter how angry I am, 
well, you're the only provider in my geographical location and I got to pay you and, and, and you can hide behind the law. Well, then that's really not free. Right. And mm. many people will say, well, that's capitalism. And I get what they mean, which is why I use the word voluntarism. I think more economic flourishing, more economic possibility and more satisfaction is created when customers have the ability to hold businesses accountable, to opt out and put their money elsewhere, and when the average player has the ability to at least try to compete. No system is capable of producing human perfection, but that is the system that I believe that optimizes for human flourishing. Mm. Let me ask you something. Because this makes me no, think no. Of- let me ask you something, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Leave the jokes to me, TK. No, so um, when it what what it has me thinking of is is uh, monopolies. So mm-hmm. in an unchecked capitalistic market, does that naturally lead to monopolies? So the fear of monopoly is one of the most effective persuasive tools against any kind of voluntary system. And it's a complicated argument. What I want to say here is that while monopolies are possible, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that there is an economic system that makes monopolies impossible or even improbable. What I mean by that is there are real monopolies that exist for no other reason than that big, powerful corporations are able to establish regulatory hurdles that make it incredibly difficult for anyone else to enter the market and grow large enough to be able to compete with them. One of the things that we see that's so tragic is, you know, there used to be a time where pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps entrepreneurially was more possible than it is today. And one of the reasons why it's become increasingly difficult is because there are a number a number of regulations that say, hey, in order to go into this kind of business, you got to have this kind of training. You got to have this these conditions met. You got to have this kind of facility. And it sounds good on the surface, right? Because if I'm selling the business, I say, hey, look, man, don't you think that anybody who uh, braids hair or cuts hair should have a barbershop where you can go to? Yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. nice. Don't you think anybody who is in the business of braiding hair or cutting hair, that they ought to meet certain regulations, like have at least three chairs and, and look and sound this way? Yeah. Like, yeah, that sounds really good. That's great. But now what happens to that person who has about 20 customers, they're not very rich, they have that person come over to the apartment to get their hair braided and they say, hey, I'm going to have kids running around. The TV's going to be loud. And they're like, no, it's all good. Mm-hmm. I don't mind, right? They come over. You're putting that person in a position where what they do is illegal. And if they ever want to get to a place where they actually can do their business in a more professional way, they got to have a lot more capital to be able to get off the ground. you know. And so none of these things are perfect, but I think the notion of monopoly often gets laid at the feet of a system that lacks all of the regulatory hurdles. But sometimes monopolies are supported by regulations that are lobbied for by people who are really powerful and are threatened by creative people that have less power than them. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of nuance with it because, yes, regulations can lead to monopolies and no regulations can lead to monopolies. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, And one thing I'll say, though, is in every society, the rich have always feared the poor. Make no mistake about it, right? And there's a logical reason for that because there are usually far more poor people in any society than rich people. And in order to deal with their fear of the poor, the rich have always run to government. 
and they have always sought to establish a relationship with the government that makes it easier for them to control the poor. All right, I'm going to get the last word in. Capitalism is the worst system available, except for all the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan, I have a bone to pick with you. Uh, A few podcasts ago, we were talking about, you were gone, and I, I did this video about like, sunglasses mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. I've decided that they're obsolete for me. We have this little segment we do called mm-hmm. obsolete objects. And yes. someone commented, we, we turned it into occasion. We'll turn a little snippet of the private podcast into a little five minute YouTube video to promote the private podcast. And one of the comments that Jessica sent me was like, Oh, what's next? This guy's going to say that sunscreen is bad for us too. And I was like, well, actually, Yes. Um, it can be for sure. I'm not recommending to anyone mm. that you should or shouldn't get rid of sunscreen, but it is more complicated than the sun causes cancer. And in that, you said consult your doctor. Mm. And I think that consult your doctor is cowardly advice to now, someone. Oh, now I know you're not calling fired. me a coward. No, in fact, I'm calling you the opposite because Ryan <laughs> is the least cowardly person yeah. that I know. And so the bone that I have, because if I, if I was talking to a coward right now, I would just say, well, that person, of course, a coward would give out cowardly advice. Yeah. But Ryan is one of the most courageous, if not the most courageous person I know. So this is kind of like, hey, I know you're better than that. It's, <laughs> hey, man, we got to stop abdicating. I don't know our, what's worse. <laughs> well, here's the thing. We got to stop abdicating our responsibility because uh, of... Uh, and saying, well, it's up to someone else to tell me what to do because consulting my doctor is what created tremendous suffering in my own life. And I, people hear that and they say, they think I'm saying, well, don't consult your doctor. I'm not saying that either. But what I'm saying is that as soon as we start outsourcing all of our responsibilities to someone else, mm. whether it's a doctor or what, what is the logical fallacy, the appeal to authority? Yeah. Mm. As soon as we start appealing to all authority, by the way, I can consult four doctors and get four different answers, Mm -hmm. and understandably so, because it's not cut and dry. And so if I go to my doctor and he's like, yes, put on this terrible sunscreen with all these poisons in it, well, I've consulted my doctor. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm not responsible now, right? Mm -hmm. Or when I consulted my doctor for, remember, I used to get that scalp acne real bad. And he's like, oh, just take this benign antibiotic for the next 12 years. I did that, and it destroyed my life. Right. And so I consulted Mm -hmm. my doctor without consulting the man in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, I do take responsibility for that, but years later now and saying, you know what? It was my responsibility to say, okay, I'll go to my doctor for a perspective, but I'm not going to give him the final decision over what I do to my body, what I put in my body, what actions I take with my life. So I want to hear Ryan's rebuttal because <laughs> I get what you're saying. It makes so much sense. And so if consult your doctor is cowardly advice, Ryan, why did you say it? Or why do you not think it's cowardly? I really just want to say, as you say, because like, honestly, like there's don't be a coward, Ryan. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, it's like I I don't have a rebuttal. It's like it Hmm. it, obviously, obviously uh, the intention behind saying that uh, is very clear in that podcast. So, Hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't really. Ha- I, I mean, I could rebuttal, but there's no reason to. Like I, as you say, you know, yeah. you don't have a discussion about it on our I podcast. Well, I don't know what to talk about it with. Like the the reason why I said it. Well, let's okay. Let's go to the data and the doctors. Mm-hmm. 
who are saying, hey, if you have a certain diet, you don't need sunscreen or sunglasses. Okay. So, so, so sunglasses, totally different thing from this, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's just stick with the sunscreen then. Mm-hmm. So um, what doctors have 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 propagated this um, this this uh, theory? Because it is a theory right now. It's not a proven thing, but it but it's but it is. There's a lot of evidence. Kind of like the grounding. It's a very um, and I buy into the grounding. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So th- that's I guess where I would start the conversation is where is that advice or maybe observation? Where's that observation coming from? Sure. Yeah. So what, I, what I'll say is that it would be unethical to do a actual scientific experiment on mm. this, right? Mm. Because a scientific, a true scientific experiment where we took identical twins and put them in labs uh, at birth, controlled all variables, right? And then we mm. need a statistically valid number of twins in order to do that. So 500 sets of twins. Why don't we just <laughs> shave a bunch of mice? <laughs> <laughs> and so that, actually, that's that's the closest thing we have to mm. the experiments here. Yeah. W- what we learn is that linoleic acid, which comes from seed oils, mm-hmm. is is often and, and it comes from rat studies mm-hmm. uh, because we it would be unethical to do human studies where we like all right we're going to give you all of these toxins sure. here to this twin mm-hmm. and the other twin we're going to give the untox the non toxic thing and then sorry, this person screwed, or you know what, it, it got us to our hypothesis. And so what I'll say is that that wasn't the full point, though. My, my point is there's also these terrible toxins that are actually in the sunscreen themselves yeah, sure. that um, we think, and what a beautiful metaphor this is for life. Mm. We often think we're protecting ourselves from something, yeah. but we're making it worse. So mm-hmm. uh, you asked what one, one of the doctors, uh, Dr. Paul Saladino, I got a clip from him. Yeah. He talks about some of the problems with the sunscreen we put on our bodies today. So what I'm hearing you say is you would consult Dr. Saladino on this. Mm. I, I would look for his, in, yeah, I would consult him to look sure. for his insights. Right. But I would not, I would not turn over the responsibility to say, hey, what should I do, Doctor Saladino? Oh yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. And I, I, when I hear consult your doctor, it's not, it's not a, it's um, not obey your doctor. Yeah, it's not obey your doctor. It is, it is consult like it's like hey, get some more information before, uh, before you make a decision based off of this thirty seconds of what I said. But what know? I'm saying here is that your medical doctor probably knows nothing about sunscreen, and so mm. they are not the ideal person. On average, right. there are some doctors who do, but your average, you, you go to your general practitioner. Yes, right, right. So not, uh, so it's consult a doctor, not well, your doctor. Consult well, a doctor. Fi- <laughs> find a- an expert or set of experts, yeah. not, not to obey them, but to better understand. Yeah. So let me play this and then we can finish okay. talking about yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. I think we're saying the same thing, by the way. I'm just saying it wrong. <laughs> I don't know if you're saying it wrong. What in the holy goodness, jeez. Let's talk about this, guys. Sunscreen, bullshit or not? Almost all sunscreens out there are going to contain compounds, homosalate, octocrylene, avabenzone, octabenzone, that are absorbed through your skin and excreted in your poop and your pee. That means they go through your whole body. These compounds are associated with cancer and they're endocrine disruptors, hormonal disruptors. Most sunscreen is also contained parabens, other endocrine disruptors, xenoestrogens, and seed oils that are high in linoleic acid. 
a fragile fatty acid that will be incorporated into your cell membranes and lead to more sun damage. Most sunscreen is pure bullshit. Pure bullshit. Protect your skin by use sunscreens based in zinc and animal fats. This stuff is bullshit. <laughs> I didn't hear a word he said. All I could see was his what shiny pecs. What in the holy <laughs> goodness. <laughs> we call that an ad hominem attack. <laughs> uh, so the, the thing to point out here is it's not about it's not the binary that we were talking about earlier, right? It's not sunscreen good or sunscreen bad. It's like, mm. hey, some of them might cause cancer. And there's a big might there. And I have to throw in the word might, which is also a cowardly word. I would throw in a lot of sunscreens probably cause cancer. I mean, I would even go a step further with it personally. Yeah, yes. right, right. And so what I'll say, though, is I will, if I know I'm going to be exposed to sun for a long time because I'm fairly fair skinned, I will use zinc oxide. But I will no longer use those things I used to just pull off the shelf because yeah. I was so ignorant for such a long time. And guess what? My doctors are the ones who told me to use those things that were poisoning me with all the good intentions. Not like they were like, Haha, I'm being paid by big sunscreen. No, of course <laughs> not. Speaking of crony capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> TK, we got a minute left on this. Oh you want to take us home? So... I, I want to give a charitable rendering of Ryan's consult your doctor because I, I I think it's more innocent than it may come off. I, I think consulting means considering someone else's perspective. To consult someone like hire a consultant means you bring someone in to get a perspective that's different from yours and then you evaluate it and you still think for yourself. I don't think it's mutually exclusive between consult X and thinking for yourself. And then doctors... Um, they at least should, in theory, point you in the direction of experts in areas where they're not an expertise. I've, I've benefited from consulting doctors before uh, and them saying to me, well, what you need is a specialist here. You need to talk to someone like this because I am this. And so I think consult your doctor can be useful. But I, I think the concern that that makes it relevant is, so, you know, we're, we're in this business of talking about our ideas and sometimes people can look up to us and listen to us and maybe we're confident sounding in what we say. And yeah. people can say, hey, look, I'm going to listen to what Ryan said. I'm going to listen to what Josh or TK said. And I think consult your doctor is not so much a cowardly move, but it's a way of saying, hey, look, this is my opinion. Here are the reasons why I believe it. Right. But there are other perspectives, too. And don't base it on just my word. Get another opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, and, I, and that's a great place to start. Yeah. And when I say when I said consult your doctor, I wasn't I mean, the, 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 the uh, connotation was not go to your physician. Mm -hmm. Go to your family doctor. In fact, go to your pediatrician. That was your first doctor. Go to them. I mean, the... the, <laughs> the <laughs> Obey your overlords. Yeah, the, <laughs> right, exactly. The uh, the advice was like, hey, I know we're, what we're talking about sounds really jarring to you. And what I don't want you to do is A, just go keto and stop wearing sunscreen. Uh, and, and B, I don't want you to just, um, you know, take our word for it. Seek some expert advice. I mean, that that's the that's the implication with the consult your doctor thing. And probably to think about this here, when you're consulting your doctor, what you're asking them for what is an opinion, yeah, right? right? And we go to get a second opinion quite often. Absolutely. But opinions are like assholes. <laughs> Everyone has them and they're all full of shit. <laughs> and so what we want to get past is actually the opinions. And we want to figure out what are the truths 
the facts that underlie this, right? Yeah. And so ultimately, we can find an expert that will point us toward whatever studies or whatever else is going on. But ultimately, we have to sift through all of those opinions to try to, to find to the, fact. the truth. And a lot of those opinions, though, people would like die on that hill of the opinion of like, this is fact. Right. And that's and, and that's where maybe it gets a little complicated because it's like, how do you differentiate someone's opinion and someone's opinion that they feel is is based in fact? And maybe, you know, just to your point, like that's why it's important to seek different facts. I mean, is that what, is that what we're trying to say? Because, yeah, I would say different opinions, but um, I, I get what you're saying. Like we want to we want to gather facts and make our own decision. It's like vaccines, yeah. man. It's like I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not a pro-vaxxer. Mm-hmm. I, I just am an informed you know, and and my information allows me to make a decision for myself. Yeah. Consult the opinions of people that you respect, but never abdicate the responsibility to think for yourself. Because even when you place faith in another person's judgment, that faith is an expression of the more fundamental faith you have in your own judgment. Because to choose to listen to an expert is to say, I trust my thinking capacity to choose an expert that's worth listening to. Always take responsibility for the choices that you make. All right, one more talk aboutable here. I had this weird epiphany about introversion recently. Ryan, as you know, I'm an extreme introvert. Yes. And I do enjoy being alone. And I realized that I really like myself. But I like me alone. <laughs> and here's what I realized. Mm. I dis like myself more and more the more I'm around people. Mm. And I become increasingly more insufferable as I am surrounded by more people. There's this uh, moment in one of my favorite novels called The Pale King. And the uh, it's a play that is taking place. And it's this real avant-garde play where the audience shows up and on the stage, there's a man who's sitting at a desk and he's just uh, sitting there doing paperwork at a desk. Is he like an accountant? Yes. Okay, yeah. And there is a clock behind him, right? And he's just doing paperwork. Five minutes goes by. The audience is just like, okay, what's going on? 15 minutes goes by. A couple people leave like, this is stupid. There's just an accountant at a desk mm-hmm. doing tax returns. And then half an hour goes by. Now half the audience starts leaving. And then hour in, everyone leaves. And as soon as the last person walks out of the auditorium, that's when the real play begins. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That is so DFW, man. (laughs) So what if if one person stays? They just will never do the play? Yeah, Exactly. And that is me. I'm the accountant on that stage, I've realized. (laughs) That I really enjoy living my life And when I'm with one person, I tend to do fairly well in short bursts. Mm. When I go beyond one person for any extended period of time, it drains me so much that I'm just as boring as that accountant. Do you feel that that way even right now? Like like with us, like you've been with us now for a solid hour. Are you you feeling like, ooh, I got to get out of here? Yeah. Once we get past the two or three hour mark, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And what I've realized, though, is it's not you. I like me. But I dislike me when I'm steeped in other people. It's like if you really like sandwiches, right? But I dunk the sandwich in water and hand it to you, you'd be like, oh, (laughs) that's me. I'm a dunked sandwich. Are you calling us water? (laughs) Or are you calling us a sandwich? (laughs) 
you, you know, you're expressing it in terms of like, I like me when versus I don't like me as much when. I think another way too, uh, and, and I, I like that way of putting it, but I, I think another way is thinking about the the way you enjoy yourself in the same terms as how you enjoy another person. So like you like Bex, but if we're all hanging out in a group, that limits how you can enjoy her company. You can only interact with Bex in a way that's suitable for being in a group. But there is a certain level of enjoyment and intimacy and connection the two of you can cultivate when you are alone, which is why we always get to a point where when we're hanging out with our loved ones, we say, you know, can I just get some alone time? Can I just get some time with you where it's not all of us hanging out together? That means something. And I think it's the same for ourselves. We need it in different degrees, but we cannot enjoy the person that we are the same in groups as we can when we are alone. Some people need lots of that. Some people need little of that. But I think it's, I think it's kind of also true that you like yourself and you like yourself so much that you want to make sure you have the chance to enjoy who you can be when you're not giving yourself to others. I think Josh is just trying to express his love in different ways. So instead yeah. of saying, I love you, Bex, he says, I like me less when I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> Which we don't kink shame around here. <laughs> I, I, I had this epiphany. Dude, I, you did that, right? It's like, I had water in my <laughs> Oh, now my goal is to get get, get him to do a spit take. <laughs> I had this epiphany when I was driving Ella to school last week. And as I was, it was just me and her. And I found that I enjoy Ella much more when it's just me and Ella. When it's me, Ella, oh. and Bex, it's like when you're trying to juggle. And I'm just not a good juggler mm-hmm. of people, right? Yeah. Like I've seen Ryan juggle one ball and it's he's really great at it. I, mean, I can even juggle best. two balls. <laughs> yeah. Not a euphemism. And <laughs> and that's where I am. I can juggle two relationships, but one of them is me. But as soon as we throw a third one in there, I just trip up and all of a sudden everything mm. crumbles, right? Yeah. And so when it's me and Bex and Ella, I struggle. When it's me and Bex, wonderful. When it's just me, wonderful. When it's just me and Ella, wonderful. Mm-hmm. When it's just me and Ryan, he and I were on the road for a year straight. Fine. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we start adding... Notice how it wasn't wonderful. It was just fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a whole year. <laughs> I know where this is going. As, as soon as TK joined us on the tour, oh, everything so, went to hell. <laughs> I'm so glad Josh didn't like drag me down a dark alley at some point that year and off me. <laughs> well, here's the nice thing, TK, is this does put me in my discomfort zone. Yeah. And this is the place from which I grow because, yeah, it's true. I could go do a solo podcast where it's just me pontificating into a microphone. There could be a place for that. But what I've realized is that, yeah, I couldn't do this seven days a week. There's no question. I, I, I couldn't. Yeah. Well, I could do it, but I wouldn't be happy doing this seven days a week. But I look forward to this now because of the great amount of space that we've created between the because I, I, I would love to podcast every single day of the week. Mm but I can't do it with a group of 10 people or whatever. Not because of them, because I like me better when I'm not that sandwich submerged in water. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's important to have these understandings about ourselves because, you know, sometimes we will be stressed or we'll be overwhelmed or, you know, we're, we're, we're feeling anxiety. And the more we understand ourselves, the more we can understand 
these symptoms. But since we got a couple minutes left, I'm like taking a sharp right hand turn here. How's Ella like in the school, the new school? She's unschooling right now. Yeah. And I heard her describe it to a friend of the other day and they said, oh, what's it like? She said, it's awesome. It has all the things that a regular school would have, but you don't have to do any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just love how she's like, oh, I'm starting the f- what, fourth grade or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they don't have grades. Right. Now. Right. And she's like, oh, I'm starting the fourth grade. And you're like, you don't have grades anymore. And like it, it like for her to wrap her mind around that was like this huge, like, you know, epiphany for her. Like, yeah. who am I without a grade? Right, who am I without who, a grade? Who would you be without a grade, yeah. man? And see, Kat, I'd love to take you out there since you've worked with so many young adults mm. on alternative education. I was telling yeah. Ella that TK started a company called Praxis that is basically unschooling for adults. And she loved the idea. I mean, I'll tell you, she hated her formal education of public schooling. Mm. She, I mean, the weekends, she can't wait for the weekend to be over. Oh, so wow. she can go back, back to, to unschool. She knows it's not school. There are no teachers there. There are no desks. Yeah. She gets to go explore Beatles and play here. And here's the weird thing. She's learning so much more yeah. this year than she ever has in the past. Well, why is that? Because when you immerse yourself in it in a joyous way, you learn more. In fact, mm. she's her reading has even improved. And there isn't like a, a reading class or anything but she's now reading things she wants to read. She's not being forced to do the things that she should do. She gets to do the things that she wants to immerse herself in. Ella wow. is, um, I think she's really smart. Like she's very observant. She's, uh, for, for a child of her age, like she knows what's going on in the room more than like I would have known at that age. Mm. Um, but the re- it's funny though, because the reading thing, is, is, she, is it dyslexia? Mm-hmm. Is that what you, okay. So, I, I, I was going to specifically ask about the reading because I know how much work you and Bex did mm-hmm. to like get her uh, in these classes to like, you know, help her overcome yeah. this, uh, overcome dyslexia. And none um, of that worked. Right, exactly. But this unschooling thing is like, it works for her. And yeah. that's, that's, that's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that, man. That's cool. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a segment we have here. It's called Amass It or Trash It. Ryan came up with the segment several months ago when we shift our podcast to bring TK I should have called it Ryan's Rubbish. <laughs> now that we're doing cutesy little segment names now. Yeah, but do you have a jingle? That's the question. Ryan's Rubbish. <laughs> All right, sorry. All right, Amass It or Trash It. What do we have here? Professor Sean on the clock. Ariana has something for us, Alabama. She does. She sent in a picture of her electric kettle. She told me she'd been on the fence about this one for ages because they get a lot of value out of having it. And they had one recently break. But instead of replacing it immediately, she picked up an old cheap one for like $2. Gave her some time to assess an intentional replacement, but still get the functionality out of it. And what I thought was really cool is I think we have this same one in here, don't we? Is the, yeah. the fellow one? Um, it's got the little gooseneck, and it would improve. It'd be really awesome over. if Danny had like a photo on an iPad that we could <laughs> show us like, like, while you're talking about it. What is going on today? <laughs> yes, there was. So she likes using that for the pour over coffee. It's very aesthetically pleasing, but she's been resisting it because it won't heat water as easily, um, at least for any other purpose because of the slow pour spout. So she's worried that she might be compelled to get a second electric kettle so that it serves the other purposes. Yeah. So let's talk about this real quick. I have two electric kettles because I have two different residences, right? And so... Um, I wish there was a photo here right now. Jordan will put it here in post-production. I promise you it's in the show notes, Danny. I think you just must have overlooked it there. But um, so 
we have two kettles. I have the Bonavita, which is, I think, the same one you have, Ryan. We have one here at the studio. God, I want that to break so bad so I can replace it with something you, more beautiful. You're you're in <laughs> Ariana's <laughs> predicament, right? Yeah. yeah. Here, here's what I'll say. Ariana can have mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she wants the more beautiful one, too. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and so I, when we moved into this new house, Bex and I bought the more beautiful one from a company called Fellow. And while it's fine... It's just that. It's fine. And here's the problem with it. <clears throat> it, you know, the little plug that on your Bonavita, you can wrap it underneath and so you don't have this long cord sticking out. Yes. There's a long cord on the on the fellow kettle. This is a huge design flaw. So what I've realized is that sometimes the things that we think are an upgrade are in many ways a downgrade for us. Mm. Because yes, it is more aesthetically pleasing. And I wouldn't have it, though, if it wasn't literally the only thing we have on our counter. We have a coffee grinder and a kettle on our countertops, and that is it. We don't allow anything else on our countertops. Everything else goes in. I I was at the uh, um, gym the other day, and this guy walked up to me, and he said, hey, you're the reason I can't have my toaster on the counter anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And And you were like, you're welcome. That's exactly what I said. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. I said, isn't it peaceful? And I said, by the way, I'm not telling you not to have your toaster on on your counter. I'm telling you not to have a toaster at all. <laughs> <laughs> you call yourself a minimalist. <laughs> but I'm telling you not to eat toast. I got two okay. minutes left here. Okay. And TK, okay. let me hand it over to you. <laughs> I, I will say this. Um, <laughs> we often try to upgrade, but it becomes a downgrade from the thing that we thought we wanted. So yes, buying the more aesthetically pleasing thing, but when form doesn't follow function, when function is an afterthought, that becomes a problem. And that's what the problem was here, Hmm. is this kettle's fine, and I like it just fine. Mm -hmm. But it didn't give me everything I thought I would want from a kettle. It didn't solve all my problems. It didn't make me or my kitchen more complete. The only way to make the kitchen even close to complete or calm is to remove the excess, Mm. not to buy the right accoutrement. Yeah. Mm. Hey, now, in your case, you had two kettles because of two different residences. We're talking about one residence here, right? Mm -hmm. But the the possibility of getting two kettles. So I have the Bonavita at my my place and it's totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's great. But in our in our house, with me and Bax and Ella, we have the aesthetically pleasing one that is actually in some ways less aesthetically pleasing because there's this giant cord that you have to try to tuck away. Yeah. I mean, is it possible though, instead of getting a second one, to just get the one that you like and give away the other one? Impossible. But here's my, what I'm trying <laughs> to say, TK. Yes, that, that is possible. But what I realized in doing that is the one that I wanted isn't actually the one that I want. <gasps> and isn't that true with everything that we want to some extent? Because we think that object A is going to complete us. Yeah. And so you get the one that you want and you realize it doesn't actually do everything I thought it was going to do. It's not as completing as I once suspected. So okay, oh, wait, wait, wait. But some, you got six seconds. But sometimes it is. Sometimes oh. it is. Sometimes upgrades are a reality. It, of course. Just, you keep going, man. It's fun. No, give us man. another. Give us another sixty seconds. No, like, <laughs> no man. I'm no, not gonna. no. You're absolutely right. But but here's what I want to get to. Are we are we telling are, are we telling Ariana to get rid of her Bonavita or are we telling her to keep it? 
Like, is is that the question here? It, it uh, is yeah, fundamentally the question. And okay. Here's what yeah. I will say is, yes, I think the more aesthetically pleasing fellow kettle is on the surface more aesthetically pleasing. You see it in all the pictures and there's no damn cord there, right? Mm-hmm. But then when you get it home, you realize, oh no, yeah. the thing that I wanted is actually getting in the way. So I have this option right now. I can afford to buy a second fellow kettle for my place. I kept the Bonavita because I realized after buying the first one that it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I I would. Yeah, I would. I am more of a function over form guy. So, uh, and I'm doing it right now. I want a more beautiful kettle. Although that's way nicer than mine. But regardless, um, I would be totally happy with that myself. But the one I have is ugly compared to that one. Um, But yeah, I hang on to it because again, I am more function over form. So there isn't a right or wrong answer here. The question is, is like, what are you more function over form? I would recommend though, not having two electric kettles. That seems, um, I just personally wouldn't have two electric kettles. At the same house, you're saying. Right. Unless there's a reason for you to have two. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Obsolete objects. This is a little segment we're bringing back to the podcast. By the way, you can send us your amass it or trash it and your obsolete objects to podcast at theminimalists.com. We'll answer them here on the show. Professor Sean sent me this. This is minimalist bread, literally marketed as minimalist wheat bread. We, I'm Wait. telling you, man, we're in the wrong business. We own, we own minimalism, and why aren't we advertising like this on things? <laughs> now, there's a particular irony here. Now, one might make an argument that bread itself is not minimalist. That's not the argument I'm going to make today. Let's say that you decide you want to have bread in your life. This is certainly not the minimalist version of it. Professor Sean, can you read some of the ingredients that are in this so-called minimalist bread? By the way, if you're watching the video version of the podcast, you'll see it here above my left shoulder. All right, we start with organic wheat flour, water. I say add salt and you've got minimalist bread. Mm-hmm. But then we go on to organic, unrich, enriched, unbleached wheat flour. So more flour, uh, organic, vital wheat gluten, more gluten on top of the two flours, mm. uh, organic cane sugar, organic honey, and then 2% or less of each of the following. Organic salted butter, yeast, sea salt, ascorbic acid, organic distilled vinegar, and enzymes. <laughs> so my wife makes bread at home. She makes sourdough bread every freaking day she's making. And you haven't brought any of us any of this bread? You're so selfish. Private. You don't even eat bread. <laughs> you, my, my, my girlfriend found this and she's still in Portland. So. Yeah, well, what I would say is that you know, maybe Bex is making a minimalist version of bread where you know the ingredients are literally water and salt and uh, some oil flour. or Yeah. You know. There's no oil. There's no, no nothing. And so when we talk about oh. minimalist, we're talking about uh, being devoid of excess. Now, you get to decide what excess is here. But certainly what the problem here is, I almost made this a sucky ad segment, although this isn't technically an advertisement. So uh, what the problem is here is when we simply slap on a marketing term. We commodify everything. Man. And so now it's minimalist bread. It's You might as well say sustainable bread right. or... Organic bread. Or, uh, you know. What was the big one a few years ago when we were on tour? Certified. Um, certified was one, but there was something else. It was um, natural was one, oh, which meant right, nothing. Right. Oh, I re- It was... Um, was it in Canada? That it, we kept seeing it? We saw natural. We saw certified. We saw... I mean, all of these become buzzwords that 
become devoid of meaning. Right. And when say, they say, I don't even know what they mean by minimalist bread here because it has a ton of different ingredients. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what is it? Does it look simple? What no. the hell do you mean by minimalist bread? They by are the way, commodifying oh. the word minimalism. That's what they're doing. That's, but, it's the only yeah. thing they're doing with that. Yeah. So, uh, well, so that's funny because mm-hmm. I was driving from Georgia to South Carolina and I, I just stopped at this random coffee shop um, at, at some small town in Georgia. And, and I went in, it was like a little cafe and they had different sandwiches with different names. And one of them was called The Minimalist. Mm. And I remember taking a picture of the menu and sending it to you and you were like, oh, that sounds like a girl sandwich. <laughs> but there was nothing about the sandwich that, you know, made it minimalist. Like it wasn't like there's only one ingredient or something like that. It was just the minimalist. Like maybe they think someone walks in and go, oh, it's minimalism. That's the sandwich I should be eating. But we do this with everything too. I mean, even with things where there's a more literal application like zero carb bread or keto friendly bread. But when you look at the ingredients, it's like, this is not keto friendly at all. Right. This is not zero carb at all. And it's it just, it's the same lesson, right? You can't be led by labels. You have to actually look for yourself and not just trust the you know, the, the marketing tricks that people play. Well, if big corporate bread has an opportunity to commodify <laughs> something, it will. Natural <laughs> bread, minimalist bread, whatever it is. We Free range bread. Yeah, we're Ooh, lying. Yeah. Patent pending. Sorry, it was too good. It's mine now. <laughs> Speaking of lying, we have a little segment we do here called Advertisements Suck. And Professor Sean found this. It is a radio advertisement for Hennessy. Let's give it a listen. This podcast is brought to you by Hennessy. It's a lot more than the world's most popular cognac. Hennessy is out here celebrating the people who never stop, the people who never settle, the people who are chasing greatness above all else. People like chess icon Maurice Ashley, who became the world's first black grandmaster in 1999. He sharpened his intellect like a sword and reached new levels of brilliance with every move. Shatter your limits. Hennessy. Never stop, never settle. Visit Hennessy.com to learn more about Maurice Ashley. 21 plus. Please enjoy responsibly. Okay, so let's let's I, talk about this. I feel dumber listening to that. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> what what I the irony of a alcohol brand and their tagline is never stop. Right. First of all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. I have a problem with that. I also have a problem with the commodification of black culture. This is a black drink. Mm-hmm. Now, pardon me for being offended on it's, behalf it's, it's of black people. It's popular among black people. But that, yeah. so oh, okay. it's Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's... Yeah, and, and so, but what I'm saying here is the irony of don't stop, but then also associating chess with yeah. Hennessy, a <clears throat> competition in which you need your sharpest they faculties. They got there by not drinking mm-hmm. Hennessy. Right. <laughs> Hennessy, Michael Jordan. Like, well, he got there by taking really good care of his body. So anyway, let's, yeah, go ahead. let's talk about the insidiousness mm. of an ad like this. Mm, okay. I, I have to wrestle with this one because I'm not sure. Um, is the glass half empty or is it glass? Is the glass half full? Because it's wh- half full of Hennessy. <laughs> okay, so so here's an angle you can look at it from. At the end of the day, they're going to do their commercials. Mm-hmm. They're going to do their commercials. They're going to sell their product, and 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 that's going to be what it is. They got a niche market. They know who's listening. They know who's buying. Mm-hmm. I think if Hennessy just took a year break from doing commercials, I think they'd still survive and be fine off their name. 
But since they're doing commercials, maybe there's somebody there that says, hey, look, why don't we take advantage of the reputation and audience that we have to promote something good alongside a product that people are already buying? Sometimes you have people in these companies who are trying to push the culture to be a little bit more cautious, push the culture to do something something that is socially good and say, hey, look, let's use some of our ad time to promote somebody who did something amazing. And I'm, I'm not so sure that that's a bad thing because if, if, you, if you write them and say, hey, stop doing that, they're still gonna do their commercials. So, so maybe that's the glass half full by throwing in something like that. Yeah. That's that's inspiring because I, I did get inspired here in that. No, I agree with you. Like, I want to learn more about Maurice Ashley, but I don't want to drink Hennessy specifically because they're using Maurice Ashley as this this link between uh, between Hennessy and chess. Like, it's, yeah, but when would you have a problem with it? Let's say it's a heroin dealer. And now all of a sudden it's like, because Hennessy, one, one might make an argument that uh, because Hennessy is socially acceptable, it's it's more pernicious, right? Because at least with heroin, it it's not socially acceptable to just oh just shooting up right before the podcast, mm-hmm. right? Or drinking right before the podcast. Yeah, people drink on podcasts all the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are entire yeah. podcasts that are I mean, Drink Champs is a, an, a, an example of one of the most popular podcasts in the world. And it's just Nori and you know and uh, DJ EFN mm. who are dr- I mean they're drinking gotcha. with their guests, gotcha. getting their guests drunk, but on the podcast they're not like all right let's just shoot up real quick. Yeah. But and so I know it sounds hyperbolic at first, but they're both drugs. Sure. They're both things that have ruined our lives, Ryan, mm-hmm. because of our parents and and their drug and alcohol addiction. The fact we even call it something different. It's drug and alcohol, as if alcohol isn't a drug in and of itself. Yeah. And so the problem that I have with this is it is now associating these wonderful achievements of of someone with this thing that is at best, impeding the achievements, at worst, ruining people's lives. It's a poison. And we're pretending like it's something else. If I had the ability to go to all the different companies that sell products, including products that I don't like, and I could convince them to add alongside their typical commercials some little short, inspiring story about an important figure from the culture who went out and did something great... I would consider that to be a, vic- a, vi- a great victory if I could pull that off. I, yeah, I get your sentiment there. It is a half empty or half full type thing because it, it certainly isn't full. But I understand. I mean, this is the half. This is the half full approach. I agree with you mm-hmm. what you're saying. Like that would be a victory. Like I wish every commercial I learned a new <clears throat> word, or every commercial I learned about a, a new, you know, role model like you know, yeah. that I could look up to. I get that. I mean, that's I see what you're saying there. I'm going to move on to our next segment. It's called Photo Friday Home Tour. This is number 10 in our series. And what Danny Unknown has put on the screen for us here, I just came home the other night and I walked in the front door and the sun was coming through the living room windows and I saw Ella there on her tablet and she was reading. She has this new app called uh, Reading Eggs and it's a phonics-based app. And Mm. I realized that you know with her struggles with reading early in her life, one of the reasons is we've mo- we've removed phonics from from schools, and so kids don't learn through they don't learn phonetically how to read anymore. Oh, and there are a whole wow. bunch of reasons why that people have speculated. But 
our literacy levels continue to drop. If you look at the correlation between when phonics was removed from schools and where we are today, you Mm. see these levels continue to drop. And Mm. that's not what this picture is, is really about. I just walked in and it was, it was really peaceful. This is the only artwork we have on our wall anywhere. It is called, by the way, if you're watching the video version, it'll be above my, my left shoulder. And we also emailed this picture to you every Friday. We send out little home tour photo Friday picture in your inbox. What I have here on the wall here is called a Girard environmental enrichment panel. We often think about the environment like being outside, but also the living environment in which we're in, enriching our living environment. And quite often the best way to do that when we have too much stuff that's in the way as we remove the excess. That's one way to enrich the environment. Mm. I'm not a big fan of having things all over my walls, pictures on the fridge, all these other things. And so whenever we do something, we try to do it really intentionally. And with Bex and me specifically, one of the things that we try to do with our living room here is have a mix of masculine and feminine. Because up to me, it'd be all grayscale. It'd be black and white and gray, everything. And she's like, she wants much more earth tones and beige and more wabi-sabi. And so it's finding that dance between what works well for her the more bohemian things like you see in this picture and what works well for me, like this artwork that is on the wall. And she, when we first talked about getting this piece of artwork, which is just a, a textile cloth that is hanging on the wall here, what she, um, she talked about is like, I'm worried that we're going to make the space too masculine. And I said, hey, trust me here. We can always remove it. But the space, once we have all of our furniture situated here, is very feminine. And this is going to add just a touch of masculinity without it feeling like we're in a you know WWE poster or something. <laughs> you got your rug, man. Oh, we did. Yeah, we finally we finally got a rug. That looks good. We no we no longer have tape on the floor. <laughs> I'm trying to find a joke about how you live separately. You have your place, and then you have yours and Bex's place. Yes, but Bex does not have her place. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I love you bringing that up because. Essentially, we default to her preferences in our place together, right? Mm. And in an ideal world, if I had unlimited money, we'd probably just have two completely separate places. Mm. And I'd be totally fine with that. Hey, you do your own thing here. I'll do my own thing here. And wherever we intersect is great. But now it's much more deferring to her here. I have a say in anything that goes on here. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I want to respect her and her preferences. That's why you, what you see on the screen right now, and when you look at our living room, it is much softer, much more feminine. And it's not complete either, but of course it will never be complete. But uh, what we have here, much more soft ed- edges, much more, um, much less masculine than if I were living on my own. And certainly much less Spartan then mm-hmm. my place. Soon, what we'll do on a future tour here, I'll take a photo of my living space. And it's like uh, the most beautiful prison cell you've ever been in. <laughs> but even the most beautifully decorated prison cell. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I can leave. <laughs> All right, let's check in with our Patreon live stream every Tuesday at 10 a.m. We host a live stream for folks who support the video version of the podcast. Alabama, you got a question from the live stream for us? We do. We have a question from Linda. Do you have any suggestions for saying no to family requests? Mm. Depends on what your family is requesting, right? right? And so quite often, if it's not a 
hell yes to me, then it's a no. Mm. And I can talk to people about that. I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting for you, but it's not a hell yes for me. In fact, it even sounds like a yes for me, but I'm only saying yes to things that are hell yeah. I got this from Derek Sivers years ago from his book, uh, Anything You Want. Eventually, Mm -hmm. he ended up writing a book called Hell Yeah or No. And the philosophy of Derek Sivers there is we have to say no so that we can say hell yeah. Mm. And quite often, the opposite happens. We wait until something's a hell no before we say no to it. Of course, hey, Ryan, we eat this pile of poop. Hell no. Okay, you're going to say no to that, right? But <laughs> How can I say no to you, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> and so hell no, we always say no to. But if it's a, eh, I don't know, we often say yes. Yeah. And these tiny yeses over and over become the root of our discontent. Mm. Yeah. Family yeah. for me is, uh, it is important. And those are the relationships I would love to be the best relationships in my life. And I go out of my way to try and do that with my family. But um, if a family member asks me to do something, or if TK asks me to do something, or if the guy in the homeless encampment across our street asks me to do something, um, I, I mean, it's pretty much this, it's pretty much the same person. If I can do it, I'll do it. And if I can't, I can't. Just because we're family doesn't mean I'm going to treat you any, mm. any, any differently. I, but I do understand the, because there are some families out there that are like, and I actually appreciate this about some cultures. They are like so committed to their family that they, they do go out of their way to say yes to family more often. Um, and there are some aspects of that that I do look up to. I but, will say that but I, that's not how I operate personally. I do say yes to my family more often. Sure. Hmm. And, and the reason I do that is because my family is more of a hell yes to me yeah. than the random person who's walking down the street right now. Right. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that I'm morally better for saying yes to my family versus the person on the street. But if I say yes to the person on the street, then by default, I may have to say no to the people who are closest to me. Yeah. And TK, it's incredibly difficult to say no to the people closest to us because why? We don't want to disappoint them. We don't want to upset them them. And so in a weird way, I'm willing to upset myself to avoid upsetting others. And if that is really their expectation of Mm me, hey, Josh, you should be willing to be unhappy for me. Well, then they themselves are being selfish, not me being selfish by saying no. It's someone else who has an expectation that I must always say yes to them who is actually being selfish. That's so that's so true. The expressed disappointment of people we care about tends to carry a lot more weight than the expressed disappointment of people that we don't mind disappointing. Mm. If my mom says, I feel like you don't love me, which she doesn't say, I love you, mom, and I know you love me. But if my mom were to say that, that might carry a lot more weight. It might be harder to get over than just the man on the street saying, I feel like you don't love me. I like, I don't even know you, man. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think something that can be very helpful. This is difficult, but it's less difficult than living a life of resenting yourself and others for saying yes all the time is I would address, I would address the harassment or whatever you want to call it, microaggression or subtle forms of guilt tripping that family members lay at my feet when I choose to say no in order to do what's best for me. 
an example from my life. I remember I had a, a, a close friend who would always ask me to do little things. And when I couldn't do it, I would say, no, I, I'm not able to do it. And they would always just casually say, oh, that's lame. That's lame. Oh, you're lame. And I got so bothered by it. I just said at one point, like, hey, I don't like when you do that. I don't like when you call me lame every time I tell you that I can't do something that you want. I, it makes me feel like you don't support what's healthy for me. And when they heard me say that, it floored them. They were like, dude, I, I wasn't even taking what I was saying seriously. I didn't know it made you feel like that. I was just teasing. I'm sorry, man. Teasing is such a socially acceptable phenomenon that many people can have a habit of guilt tripping you and saying things to you that hurt your feelings without even knowing that's the impact they have. And family members and friends who truly love you might be shocked to know that they're having the kind of effect they're having when they harass you for saying no. So make it easier to say no by directly addressing the guilt tripping and harassment that people lay at your feet when you do it. Yeah, I appreciate the nuance there, man, because you're right, there is a prioritization that goes on. So if I got four people asking me to do something and I got one yes to give out, like, yeah, there is going to be a prioritization that happens for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, y'all, before we get to our added value segment, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing going on in the life of the minimalists. Well, at least one of the minimalists. I uh, have a writing class called How to Write Better. And I've been doing these little short videos on YouTube called Bad Writing. I'm going to be working on this new series called Good Writing. And we're doing an audio version of that. It's called the How to Write Better podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll put a link in the show notes. But little four or five minute lessons where I show you an example of bad writing or good writing, or here's an example of how to improve your grammar or use fewer adverbs or adjectives. We break down some sentences. We talk about books that are really powerful. And we talk about other books and how they could be improved. Mm. And little five, six minute chunks that you can digest. You can walk away with something today that will improve your writing. It's 100% advertisement free. It's called the How to Write Better podcast. And the first three episodes are available right now. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts or head on over to howtowritebetter.org. For added value this week, guys. Oh, Ryan. They all went downhill after OK Computer. <laughs> I was oh, listening man. to this uh, over dinner uh, this week, and I was playing it, and Bex, she's like, man, this... She looks at the name of the band, and it's called The Smile. And so the added value this week is this band called The Smile, and Bex was like, this sounds so much like Radiohead. <laughs> I'm like, well, it kind of is Radiohead. Yeah. So Tom York and Johnny Greenwood, who are the two main members of Radiohead, or two of the main members of Radiohead, they partnered with this jazz drummer named Tom Skinner. Mm. And they created this band during the pandemic called The Smile. And so it is Radiohead-esque, which Radiohead's one of my favorite bands of all time. And this music, it's sort of ethereal. It's great sort of lying around the house with nothing to do music. Mm. Like, wow, we're just hanging out, we're eating dinner, we're being calm. So the song you're hearing in the background right now, if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, is a song called Waving a White Flag from The Smile's one and only album. It's an album called A Light for Attracting Attention. Or if you're watching the YouTube version on the public podcast, you'll see a link you can click on if you want to hear the song as well. What made you pick that particular song? The way that it started was just so, it felt like it was right for our podcast. Yeah. 
And it was a, a great way to end this episode because we're talking about feelings. We're talking about saying no. But if we can say no with a smile, mm. how much more powerful is that than no, no, no? If I could say, no, I don't think that's for me. I want to say it with a smile. So enjoy waving a white flag. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace.
Left behind 